I began to understand that where society was going wrong after having studied it for years and talked about systems and looked at what was happening and met people that were involved and met the players, that there was no spiritual context in these systems. So that the, the lack of mystical and spiritual evolution was at base a primary explanation for the failure of these systems to grow properly because of their focus on a materialist, mechanistic, uh, clockwork un uh, universe based on control. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Chang. Today's guest is author, painter, and speaker, James Tunney. Hi, everybody. Are you ready for a deep dive into the past, present, and potential future of humanity? I'm very excited to share James Tunney with you today. James is an amazing man I had the great fortune to find while doing research for my new book, workbook, and online program. I came across two of his many books titled The Mystery of Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, and The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution. I did a significant amount of study in these books, and it was immediately apparent to me that James Tunney is a true wise man, a mystic, and dear to my heart, he's an amazing artist as well. With all this in my mind, I knew I had to find a way to contact him and invite him onto the show, and I'm very glad that I did. In fact, since making first contact with him, we've had many email exchanges, and I've found him to be an incredible resource and a very deep well of knowledge and wisdom. Atop of that, he's a very skilled and experienced lawyer in international law, has been a professor of law and worked with the UN, so he has a very good idea of the depths of what is going on in the world from both a spiritual perspective as well as through the eyes of an international lawyer, all of which made me want to get him on the show and ask him what he feels is really going on in the world right now. As you will learn in this podcast, James Tunney's grasp of the literature in many fields ranging from law to metaphysics to science to religion to spirituality is duly impressive. Enjoy this deep, highly informative and educational exploration of the world and our situation today with James Tunney. Hi, everybody. I imagine some of you are finding that your mind is not as sharp as it was or that you can't seem to remember things as well, such as the last page you read in the book or the key points from a meeting you just attended recently. Do you feel that your brain is taking longer to come online or that your thinking gets muddled or fuzzy when you've got a lot to get done? If so, Organifi Pure may be just the magic you need. A key ingredient in Organifi Pure, called Neurofactor, showed a significant impact on brain-derived neurotropic factor, which has been widely reported to play a critical role in neuronal development, maintenance, repair, and protection against neurodegeneration. The certified organic combination of herbs in Organifi Pure not only enhances mental clarity and promotes brain-derived neurotropic factor to stimulate the development of new neural pathways, it aids in enhanced digestion, which is important because many cognitive problems are symptoms of poor digestion. To get your Organifi Pure and shop their amazing product line with your Living 4D discount, go to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and save 20% on any of their products using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K20, that's CHECK20 during discount. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. I don't know if you're aware, but there is a tremendous amount of confusion about stretching amongst athletes, therapists, and people in general. For example, here are some misconceptions that result in inefficient, ineffective stretching, or may even set you up for injury. A. 
you should stretch all the muscles in your body in a stretching session. This concept ignores the principle of balance. Think of a bicycle wheel that's out of balance. If you loosen all the spokes, will you get a balanced wheel? Everyone should stretch. Though stretching in general is good for people, there are many people with hypermobile joints. Stretching the muscles crossing such joints increases hypermobility, facilitating joint dysfunction, inflammation, degenerative changes, and pain. If you don't stretch hard enough, you won't get good results. This misconception is common amongst martial artists and unskilled teachers and practitioners of yoga. The truth is that you should consider a tight muscle like a crying baby and move into the stretch gently. Coupling stretching actions with conscious breathing actually enhances short and long-term benefits and long-term range of motion changes. Another common misconception is that you should do a good stretch before an athletic event to get the best results. Though this is a true concept, the problem is that most athletes use static stretching or long hold stretches to loosen tight muscles before athletic events. This, as I show in my scientific stretching program, results in a lot of muscle injuries. This is one of the most common reasons sprinters tear hamstring muscles, and in the course, I show you why this happens. The truth is, even when people have a solid understanding of the physical side of stretching, it's still only a mechanical process. The human body is much more complex than that. Mechanical approaches to stretching don't offer the true depth and power of stretching scientifically. It is well known in many healing arts and well described in books like Stanley Kellman's Emotional Anatomy that muscles, joints, and connective tissue all respond to one's thoughts, feelings, and emotions. This is clearly defined when we study the anatomy of yoga and the chakra system. Each part, be it internal or external, is linked to an associated chakra and corresponding mental-emotional challenges that are unresolved in the individual. Tight muscles often result from such energies being stored in the body. In scientific stretching, not only do I show you how to read the body from many perspectives, I give comprehensive explanations on this process and tips for using stretching, breathing, pressure release, and awareness so anyone can heal and restore emotional and mental balance to their body-mind as part of a holistic approach. Learning to stretch properly gives you a lot of information that can help you at every level of your being. For trainers, coaches, and therapists of any type, the information I share can be applied and greatly increase the effectiveness of one's therapeutic approach. Getting great results is always great for business. My new course, Scientific Stretching, will teach you not only the best way to stretch and improve your health and performance physically, but will help you see and realize the deeper mental, emotional, and spiritual benefits of stretching as well. One of the real benefits of the teachings I share is that you learn the language of the body and realize that it's always talking to you, giving you tips, and making suggestions as to where change is needed, be it your exercise program, stretching program, diet and lifestyle, your relationships, or even your overall disposition. In my new scientific stretching course, you will learn what stretching offers us for achieving health and well-being. My one, two, three, four model of stretching. Stretching assessments for targeted stretching, including what types of stretching work best in different situations. The pressure release method for improving mobility and flow. The mental-emotional relationships to body restriction. The fascia-water relationship. And much, much more. As with all the courses in my scientific e-learning series, this course is extremely comprehensive and will give you a perspective on stretching that will help you and your clients see tremendous long-term results. For professionals using stretching as part of their practice, scientific stretching will give you the kind of advantage a calculator would have given you in math class before anyone else had one. Scientific stretching includes 11 videos with over 8 hours of education plus a PDF manual to help you follow along. 
I've developed these techniques in the 37 years of my clinical practice working with all sorts from all sports, so it has been time-tested over a lot of years. My clinical approach to stretching will support balancing your body, reduce injury, speed healing, free trapped emotions, help you read your body and maintain a healthy dialogue with it, differentiate and learn to use pre-event, post-event maintenance, and corrective stretching approaches effectively, and much, much more. Get started now at checkinstitute.com forward slash stretching. That's C-H-E-K institute.com forward slash stretching. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D. I'm super excited to share our topic, The Mystery of Trapped Light. And the author of that book, James Tooney, the book is also The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Ages of Scientism. It's a very powerful, potent book that captured my attention. And having spent some time uh, watching James Tooney on various interviews and seeing him with Jeffrey Mishlove, I thought, I've got to get a hold of this guy and welcome, James. Oh, thank you very much, Paul. You pronounce Tunney like like Mike Tyson does when he's talking about Gene Tunney. He says Gene Tunney. You must have been. I know you have a, you have connections with. How boxing. do you pronounce it? Uh, Tunney rhymes with money. Funny. Tunny. Okay, Tunney. Tunney. <laughs> Tunney and money. You got yeah. me. Now I got it right. Yeah, you know, I think I just probably uh, spelled read it as it seems to spell to me, but I certainly am not an English major. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to meet you, uh, Paul. Um, I, I've I've known about your work in the health domain, and in recent times, I've become more familiar with your work in the spiritual domain. I've been very impressed Thank with you. your your holistic approach, and I have great hopes for your contributions in the future, as well as your enormous contributions in the past. So uh, it's a fantastic opportunity to get to speak to you and to create a dialogue. Yes. Hmm. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, James, I really enjoyed uh, what I've read in your books, The Mystery of Trapped Light and the Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution. Because I suspect most of our listeners are not familiar with you or your work, I'd love it if you can share an overview of your life and what brought you to be so interested in and involved in the spiritual aspects of life that you write so passionately about. Uh, okay, Paul. Um I come from Ireland, and my, my both my parents were born on farms, so they come. They were very close to the earth, and in, in, in standard Irish, almost peasant background of that type. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory sense. No. And on my father's side, they were always they were involved in politics, actively involved in in in, in politics for the the land struggle, and involved in the armed struggle and the struggle for independence. And if I if I go back and talk to my father's uncle, for example, who was a who was a lovely old man, he'd been one of the earliest members of the IRA in jail, escaped from jail, involved in all that process. But the early the early liber liberation or armed struggle at that time. And then after the establishment of, of the, the free state, um my grandfather became a member of parliament. He was seven or seven times in the Senate and elected to, to the, uh, the Doyle as well as, as a member of parliament and had a, had a Dublin County Council for, for 35 years or something. 
I saw recently that uh, during his time they they built more houses for families in in Dublin than they did uh, in the rest of in the rest of Ireland uh, during the same period. So they they moved into constitutional politics, and my uncle, both Carl James Tunney was a politician as well. So that political uh, dimension was there. From my mother's side, they were they were. I, I, I saw a book about the area, and they described. They said the person writing the book said we were poor, but their family, talking about my mother's family, were the poorest of the poor. Now that's not that's wow. uh, um, in the area. So the, I'm not saying that putting on the poor mouth. Uh, I'm very proud of the people that are where my mother came from, and uh, her sister is still alive. And f- from that perspective, I see her in London. I, to me, she's a very spiritually enlightened being, my aunt, um, because they came from nothing, but they were very close to the, to the land. And, and she's a, a very happy woman. So the idea that material wealth gives you happiness is, uh, it is contradicted by her experience. And not only that, for people like her or my, my father's uncle that I talked to and the old people I, I, I used to, to talk to, they had a bit of that mythology of Ireland, the ancient sense of the other world as a real force. It wasn't an intellectual thing. And their spirituality, although they were uh, Catholic and, and would have come from a, a Catholic background, as they say, the spiritual, there was only a thin veneer of, of, of Catholicism or Christianity over the pagan underneath. So the church in Ireland had to integrate the pagan traditions because it was too strong. So it wasn't far away. So in Ireland, there's a very strong Celtic tradition. So they, they had to integrate the pagan saints, the goddesses like Bridget, for example. So I think there was two, as well as from the, the Catholic Church, despite whatever flaws and, and problems one may attribute towards it, there was still a commitment to spirituality. And also there's the Celtic tradition, which is very, very strong on the connection with the land. So both of those contributed to given me a, a, a sense of spirituality. But in many senses, I believe that the spirituality is there. So I've heard you talking about your spiritual growth and, and, and Christianity and then experience with uh, in Indian influence. And yes. to a certain extent, they didn't make your spirituality, but you recognized something in them because your, pre, your spirituality was pre-existing. So uh, right. for me... The spirituality was never a constructed thing. It was always there, and it finds different expressions. And it's an important point. Uh, it may be facilitated from the environment which, which you come from. So uh, the uh, Irish context is very important. I went on. I studied law. I did three degrees in law. I qualified as a barrister. Uh, I, 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 when, I, when I qualified as a barrister, by that stage, I'd become very interested in, in subjects of the future. I, I wanted to look at what was going to happen in the future. So I went off to London, did a master's degree because there was a lot of good professors there where you get access to different teachers, different schools. And I studied subjects like in intellectual property and communications, technology law, antitrust law. Now, these were subjects of the future at the time. So I was, yeah. looking, I was looking towards the future. Uh, and also from an Irish context, I had a sense of where law and politics fits in. Uh, afterwards, after studying law for for seven years, I, I decided I needed to do something different for a while. So I was, I was off and <laughs> I, I was going to go to the south of France and paint. I had a, I had an image in my head. 
of painting there in a classic sense. But someone said, why, why not come to the Basque country and teach a bit of English and paint? So I, I did that. So I was in the Basque country and in Cantabria in the north of Spain for, for uh, two years. And that's an interesting part because that's where you have a lot of the ancient cave paintings, the ancient caves uh, similar to Lascaux. It's the same kind of zone. So there's a different element uh, to the culture there. And, and there's, a, there's a close connection between the Basque people and the Irish people as well. So, My uh, second wife, Angie, is Basque. Okay. It's a very interesting culture. They do things differently. And as you know, they have, they have the biggest cooperative in the world, which employs something like 80,000 people. They have remnants of an ancient culture that are still there, really, really, really profound. And they have areas in, in the mountains which are quite remote. Uh, and same in, in Cantabria. So that was an extra element. I came back to Ireland. I did a short course in massage. I was interested. I know about your background in massage. I was thinking about yeah. going the alternative route. About I was really interested. After being in Spain as well, there was quite a movement looking at alternative health therapies. So I did a short course in holistic massage and Swedish soft tissue massage. And I was very, very interested in it as a gateway to, to, to development and approach to alternative therapy. I'd always been interested, as you have been, in food. And in fact, studying food was one of the roots into understanding geopolitics for me. I, I, I became fascinated uh, with, the, with sugar, and I studied sugar every way, <laughs> the history, everything about sugar. And as you know, if you follow one line and keep pulling on that thread, you can, you can unravel the whole world. And, and so that was very important. Yes. Yeah. And also... Uh, which, which I want to ask you about sometime, is that doing massage as well, I found it opened up your psychic energy, that as you begin to put, I don't know how you feel about that or how important that was for you, but I, I noticed that as soon as you put your hand on someone, you began to experience them in a kind of psychic way. Yes, very much so. It, you know, because as a child, I was, my mother began the Self-Realization Fellowship uh, with Paramahansa Yogananda's teaching in the monks when I was 12. So by the time I became a clinical massage therapist and sports massage therapist, I had already spent many years not only practicing various meditation techniques and being counseled by the monks and getting all my questions answered, but I had had a long series of very deeply profound mystical experiences and out-of-body experiences, which I later realized was what, was what we call technically remote viewing. And that began when I was 12. So I actually, when I began my massage therapy career, already had a deep sense of the illusion of separation and the oneness of the unity at the level of consciousness between all of us. So I also found as a massage therapist, that a lot of what people were coming to me with physical problems were actually the physical manifestation of mental emotional challenges and diet and lifestyle challenges. So one of the ways that I became very successful and became famous for being able to work with medical failures is that I would do what a shaman calls emptying the bone. I would completely let go of any of my own thoughts, feelings, or emotions and just become like a drum. And I would let the spirit of that individual play my body. So all of a sudden, if I felt my heart tightening up, I would just ask, 
are you having any challenges with your heart? And if they said no, I would say, are you having any challenges in love relationships? And almost every single time, the feelings I would get would lead me to the questions that would open the person right up to what was really going on. And that happened, you know, with such great consistency that I learned that the person that thought they came to me for massage therapy was really just the doorway to helping them at a much deeper level. And, and ultimately, it was those experiences that led me to a very deep study of the psyche. That's, that's very interesting because I've been thinking about that recently and thinking about your career and, and my little experience. And I think that that's an underestimated, that psychic uh, domain is underestimated, the, the, the power of touch. And of course, going back to Jesus and healing and laying on hands, there is something deeper there that has not been fully articulated in the context of the spiritual pathways. Uh, so, um, so, so, um, I, I, when I came back to, to, to Dublin, I decided that I was going to go, uh, there's a number of routes that I could go on. And one of the points that I would make is that it doesn't really matter which route you decide to go. There's many pathways. Once you dedicate yourself 100% to that path. And I was really open. I, I was willing to, to practice law, to teach law, to follow the alternative uh, health therapy. To, to write or to paint. And I said, I'll dedicate myself to one or maybe two of them uh, as it happens. So uh, I'll see which door opens first. And as it happens, uh, a job which was perfect for me in Scotland came up. So this was to set up a degree program in European business law, which was new at that time, and to write the programs. And to, so therefore, I could input in a futuristic sense to be creative. Uh, so I said, uh, OK, I, I, I'll go for that. Um, and I went there and I, I, I was based in, uh, first, in a, it was an institute of technology and a university. I taught in Dundee and in uh, St. Andrews as well, in business schools uh, principally. So I was based in Dundee, uh, but I also taught later on in St. Andrews on a part-time basis as well in the School of International Relations. So I, I, was, I always sought to, in law to move between the different fields. So I used to present papers in law, but also present papers in different domains and different disciplines because I wanted to go out and see what are the best people in these domains, you know, thinking, am I missing out on some great insight? So I sought to do that in, in a humble way to improve. And I, I worked as an international legal consultant as well. I worked for the bodies like the United Nations Development Program, places like the Soto and Moldova, right, legislation, and I was... Uh, I, I was often invited by other bodies, UNESCO, for example, to look at the, uh, when they invited experts to uh, look at the future of world heritage and the notions of world heritage and protection of world heritage, issues that have been important for mystics like Nicholas Rorich, for example. He was closely related to the ideas of protecting spiritual and cultural heritage. And I became very interested in China. So I was invited over there uh, to, to teach a few times in the universities. I, I got on very well with the, with the Chinese uh, people. I think it's important that people, when they're talking about China, distinguish between a controlling political system and the people themselves. The people that were born into the system can't be blamed that they're being controlled by particular groups. So I, I, I've always got on well with the Chinese people. They were very good to me. They were very uh, loyal uh, associates. So in the last year when I, I, I was there, 
I I was invited both by the Academy of European Law, for example, to talk, which was at the highest, it's the highest European law kind of level, and the Chinese Academy of Social Science. So I, I was I was getting on well on that, and there was a few factors that decided after about fifteen years there. So as a lecturer and a senior lecturer and a visiting professor in other universities around Europe and China, and uh, I, I, I was often invited to. By that stage, you start off writing papers and getting published you know in, in the referee journals and then uh after that I'd, you'd get invited more you know to, to to speak as guest speakers of various things around the world i i enjoyed that as, as a learning experience um and there was a number of factors that came together uh to lead to a situation where i said okay now it's time to change direction uh i i i had a little flat in dundee I thought the market was going to collapse. It did, it did <laughs> just after. I knew that the economy was going to change. I had a quite strong instinct on that. Um, I had I, I had got disillusioned with the, uh, the the Iraq War and the way that uh, the the being in the United Kingdom, the forces had moved towards the political forces had moved towards. I know not. I have no complaint about any individuals that do their duty and, and go out and fight the wars. I do have complaints with politicians that make choices that are not even in their own nation's interest. And I found it very disillusioning that you could have two million people on the street and you know they were going to be ignored because of a prior decision that was made beyond the domain of democracy. So uh, there was a number of factors and also the fact that uh, I have a kind of, everyone has that kind of split left brain, right brain. So I had tended towards the analytical side and when you're in a domain with people who are very mechanistic, who look at a detail, who are good at detail, but are not good at the creative thing, it's quite difficult because it's 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 difficult to get people who are balanced on both sides. So often you'd be frustrated when you see things clearly, what's going to happen, the future, and you're dealing with people. Sometimes. I don't want to, to, to say bad things about my colleagues. I'm not. I'm talking about the framework of law. And, 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 I understand. And yeah. So um, it was time for change. And I said... Uh, I'm going to paint. We had our first child, so there was debate where we're going to live, Ireland, England, whatever, Sweden. My wife is from Sweden, so I thought Sweden was better for a number of reasons, mainly because there's fantastic nature here. That, that, that was the principal thing. So my wife was doing well in, in her job. I decided that I would stay at home because uh, for me, I remember talk, uh, I remember listening to a chap, I forget his name, who won the Nobel Prize on a, on, on a conversation about education. And he, he was from Italy. And his mother his mother died in Auschwitz. He was Jewish. And he lived on the street till he was uh, f- for nine years or, or uh, after his early, as a child. And he said, they, they said, well, how did you come from from that start to become a Nobel Prize winner? He said, well, I was with my mother for the first three years, and that's the most important period, you know. And that's that's and and uh, I became very aware of that period. For example, um, people leave children to learn languages later on in life, but their brain changes, as you know. Yes. Uh, in the mm-hmm. first, it's, it's so plastic in the first year. That's the time they lose the capacity after uh, three. That it begins to, to, to reduce. So. If, for example, the child is bilingual, they all they have that capacity for the rest of their life to be able to move 
between dimensions, not yeah. translate, but to, to shift, which is a very useful yes. skill, for example. Mm-hmm. So uh, I said, I'll, I'll stay at home and paint and uh, write and uh, look after the kids when they're small and have also space to try and make sense of the world. Because to a certain extent, when you're in an environment where, where, where you have a lot of time constraints, where you have a lot of objectives and things to do, you don't have time to think the, with the best will in the world. You, you, everyone needs space. So for me, yes. uh, be, having been in, a, in not in the public eye, but when you're going in front of lecture halls every day, you, you are, yes. you're, you're facing people. And you know, a lot of people who have never been in, uh, in that position every day Forget about there's a kind of psychic energy necessary to face uh, groups of people, especially if you're uh, if you're interacting with them. It, it, it needs a lot of energy. Um, yes. So yeah. So, so uh, to to me, to a certain extent, uh, being at home, taking the time was was my equivalent of going back to the cave. It was my equivalent yes. in, in the mystical journey of removing yourself. Uh, and I'm not saying that in any negative sense. It was great. I enjoyed. I know a lot of people don't like having time with yourself, but it was great. And also, with children, you can be a child yourself. You can look at the world again, and you, your ego has to be put aside to look after you know, in, in, in all the normal things you have to do. So, in many ways, that was a very liberating experience that I didn't kind of. I began to see operating in, in a subtle way on me. I wasn't necessarily thinking directly about spirituality and that because. I've always, it was always been there, but I was looking at uh, other dimensions. And I remember one day when I w- I'd left my daughter to her little play school when she was a bit older. We stayed out as long as we could, but, but for the socialization content. And we were late going there. It's always fun being late, and we're climbing apple trees on the way. It was great fun. It was a sunny day. You don't want to miss it. You know, you don't want to be. So we were having great fun. So we left her in, and... and a bit annoyed sometimes to come late, but uh, I was I was coming home, so I was quite relaxed, and and then I began to kind of a, a line came into my head, which seemed to not come from the conscious conscious mind, which said that there's been a certain failure of, of spiritual evolution, and, and it just kind of seemed to come out of the blue, and I began to get a series of lines that now I understand that in in the scientific explanation, neurological explanations. They say it's different parts of the brain talking to other and it's visitor experience and that's but but uh, uh the, the mystical experience as you know appears to come from not from the conscious mind from somewhere else from you know and one can interpret that in whatever way one wants but anyway i was left with sentences that began to appear in kind of haiku form 17 syllables and so i began mm. to write them down and i began to they began to, so they emerged it, so it didn't seem to be that conscious in that sense. It didn't seem to be constructed. I wasn't working at them. They appeared as as P.L. Travers says that Mary Poppins appeared to her. You know, this is, a, 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 as you know, as, as, as William Blake said, that he got, well, he got it from his brother, a technique about etching and, and you know, they appear. Uh, and, and as Ramajan says about uh, his mathematical formulas, you know, he, dr- he dreams them. The goddess gave to him in, in, in a dream. So there's this strange feature about mysticism, this strange idea that knowledge appears in a revealed form, that it's not constructed, that it comes from a place, it's pre-existing and, and it's pre-fashioned in some way. So I began to write them down and it, 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 
it came into the mystical cord. And as I was doing it, I began to look back on things that I had read years ago, a long, long time ago. And I began to see them in a different light. I began to, because you read these books, you know, you, you, you approach them when you're younger, you pick up one of the great texts and you can read it, you get something out of it, but you may not get a lot, lot out. And you come back a, a, another time in your life, you go up the spiral and you can yep. see it from a different dimension and you go further. And then I began to see what I was writing was a pattern, which is in all which is in all the, uh, the, the, the mystical sets. And, and I try to explain that in the sense of an idea that we must come into a chord, which is quite funny when you're explaining exactly your conception of the massage context, the resonance is coming into a chord with the other person, into agreement. It's, it's, yes. uh, that's, what, that's what you're doing. So you're entering into that space of communication. And similarly, we have to have our head and our heart in accord. We have to have our heart and our head in accord with a greater, I don't want to use the word value because that's become popular by a lot of sharpness and <laughs> a greater whole, uh, whole meaning. Uh, yeah, so, so we have to link with that. And uh, my, in a mystical accord, there's a simple structure that emerged that in, in my terms, now I know you have explained and I've listened to your concept of, of self and, you know, so everyone has slightly different emphasis, but um, to, in simple terms, that we start off with the ego, uh, with the self, with the persona, which of course we know is mask. The, uh, we, we begin to get entranced by the illusion of, of this construct, which is in many ways non-existent, the maya, the, the, the illusion. And then yeah. we begin to deconstruct it to get to what's behind the person, which uh, the, the self, which I call the true self, the true self being consistent with what we find in Advaita Vedanta, that which is behind, mm. that I am that, that consciousness. So yes. I say that, the, I say that the, the idea of consciousness that scientists have been singularly uh, unsuccessful in finding is spiritual consciousness. Whatever way you want to cut it, whatever way you want, it, it, it's the spirit. Now, the spirit, of course, includes the soul. There's different emphasis. But I, I call it the spirit because I think that that's the most recurrent and consistent uh, principle. And using Occam's razor, it explains and can incorporate the soul. So the, the spirit or true consciousness is there. Once we discover that and, uh, and, and find it, we're, we're, we're nearly home in the sense of uh, where we go. Um, so I think there is a process of evolution which every individual is meant to go through and has to go through on the law that can't be given to them by external force. It, it can be helped, but the person has to go on that journey. They have to go through that pro process of looking at their ego, taking away the bits that are inconsistent with some general principles like compassion, for example, try and find the principles that are seen to be a godly like creativity, which is the essence of all, all the stories, creativity and compassion and, and the balance between them. And in that, the hero's journey, I believe, is a description of spiritual evolution, that the literary and uh, uh, journey and, and Campbell and Jung that you're very familiar with is a description of the internal journey, that we have to go on that journey, uh, motivated with some awareness of, of our spiritual sense, we go on a journey of challenges that tests us in whatever way. It's different journeys for, for different people. It may determine, it may be determined by pre-existing factors that we can't explain because our 
we come into the world with a, with a draft of forgetfulness and, and our mission must unfold. In the journey, there are certain principles that all the stories tell us. We have to distinguish between illusion and reality, and they can be very, very difficult to do so. And we also have to be careful about staying on the path, having proper attraction as opposed to distraction. And they're two right. fundamental principles. And in that context, to realize what true knowledge is as opposed to something which is not true knowledge. So they're, they're the same stories. And after a certain stage, or it could happen early on chronologically, that there is some breakthrough. There is always a breakthrough to a next, a next level. There is some transcendence of the ego, which makes us realize that the world is different, that we can go beyond time and space, that there's a world of paradoxality, uh, that we are bigger than than what we are, that we are recognizing who we are really. And then if a person, a per that may occur through a once-off mystical event, it could occur to a person who hasn't been searching through a mystical event, through a near-death experience, through uh, some unusual experience, through uh, a, a, an experience induced by drugs even, or um, not just in, 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 in the... Uh, medicinal plants, but anesthetics have, have had that uh, effect as well that people can perceive. So usually that uh, event has an impact on the person whereby they will follow and that will impact on them. A near-death experience has an impact on people that doesn't go away. My mother had a near-death experience and that was one of the first times I, I, I heard about near-death experience and she explained it and I understood directly from her from someone that I, I trust 150%, where she explains to me, where she explains to me she loses her fear of death, where she went, how it impacted on her, how she wasn't afraid of death, etc. All, all the things that we know about. So mm -hmm. the, a mystical event usually is followed by a pattern of spiritual evolution. And the result, as I would put it, as the spiritual traditions show, is that you create what I call a nexus to the numinous. It's a connection with the, with, with the higher domains that is a kind of permanent connection. You're opening that, that, that small part in, into a broader thing. So one is able to move. So another way of looking at it is we create a kind of figure eight, an infinity symbol. And, and the higher part of the eight is also consistent with the idea of your, your, the, the guardian angel, the, the, the higher self, uh, the, the man or woman of light. This is your opening up to the, the, the other dimension, which would be the obvious source of a lot of mystical insight. And uh, elaborating on that in the, um, the Mystery of the Trapped Light, I, I explained it in terms of its recurrence, the same idea in terms of light, that you're, you're born, if you look at a lot of the uh, Hildegard of Bingen, for example, she describes the way light comes into the womb and, and it starts from there's a different explanation. But... We are light, so that's a given to us. Uh, following on from that, we have to go through a process of illumination. I believe that everyone are, is the Illuminati. This is the, the, these ideas have been robbed by elite groups from this spiritual idea. So the, the uh, illumination then has to go for a combination, well, through the whole body, you can see it in terms of chakras, the unification of all, all the chakras or your, your heart and your mind in particular, where you're moving upwards into the higher domain. And at certain stages, there is again a breakthrough where you experience light, which seems to be of a higher order. 
Now, spiritual light or lux spiritualis, which is a concept has been kind of ignored a bit, has been around for a, a couple of thousand years, uh, refers to light, which is also affective in the sense that it affects the emotions. So these light experiences that people experience is not just light in, in, a, in a physical sense, it affects them in an emotional sense. And that's the difference. And that aff affect is what impacts on them. And similarly, if they work on that, well, that, that connection with the higher light expands and they can spread that light in, in, in different ways. And the final sense of light, of course, is, the, is the, the death process. There's always light experiences at the death process, uh, experiences from the person who's dying seeing light, going towards the light, uh, etc. And at the same time, just to finish off, I don't want to go on too long. But, no, uh, no, I'm enjoying it. But okay. Please keep going. Just share whatever's on your heart. Okay. And so so the, uh, the light experience is there. It's the same process, the same idea that we have to evolve individually. And uh, while there are structures outside that may help it, they are not the ones that do it. It's an organic process. It's built into us in some way. It's there in every culture. And in fact, it's lost in more complex cultures. It's the nature of all shamanic traditions. It's there in some way. Uh, it's more evolved than particular people. Uh, so, so, so that was a key thing. And the mysticism um, then began to parallel my critique of, of society, that the, I began to understand that where society was going wrong after having studied it for years and talked about systems and looked at what was happening and met people that were involved and met the players, that there was no spiritual context in these systems. So that the, the lack of mystical and spiritual evolution was at base a primary explanation for the failure of these systems to grow properly because of their focus on a materialist, mechanistic, uh, clockwork un uh, universe based on control. And, of course, based on, on, on a, a scientific, uh, Cartesian, Baconian, whatever way we want to explain it, that dominant view. And in that, yep. if, we, if we consider a different type of magic, Arthur C. Clarke saying that, uh, that science at a higher level is indistinguishable from magic, that's correct in many senses that where magic is unrelated to spirituality we're talking about an instrument of power and uh, we're talking about something different than the mystical and spiritual journey if it becomes divorced from that and jared Ma or, or mandy hall said that it was science that could become the great black magic and he he, he foresaw that and and he was correct in that now i'm not talking <laughs> he about he was very audience. correct <laughs> yeah and of course uh, i'm not talking dangerously about correct <laughs> yeah yeah it, 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 but, it, but but people fail to see that because magic is about control uh it's about control systems it's about ego it's about mastery it's about control over others that uh, control over nature it's not working with nature it's not working with the spirits it's about utilization of spirits for egotistical purposes. You don't have your ego grows and it's fed by this thing. And as Aurobindo was very good on this, he, he explained in his essay on supermanhood that you have a distinction between the love approach and the power approach. And he thought Nietzsche was wrong. He was he knew Nietzsche was wrong in emphasizing this power approach because for him, if you emphasize the power approach, you have to build yourself up. You have to do it at someone else's expense. 
you have to have the ego s- sensation that you're going to achieve mastery over them. That's part of the drive to do so. The power is, is, is the key drug, as opposed to, to the love approach, which is, is consistent with the mystical, all the mystical traditions. So that, that distinction is very, very important. Also a distinguishing between mysticism and magic. Now, I'm not saying all magic is bad. I'm saying that uh, in certain manifestations, it's a negative force, excluding... Uh, I would exclude natural magic in the sense of utilization of herbs and that tradition and, and, and all that ideas of, of natural forces. And I would exclude as, as being different the tradition of divine light magic, which is totally consistent with the idea of mysticism. And if we, hermeticism would be an example of that, for example. So uh, I, I think uh, that, that's a summary of... of um, where I'm coming from in that context. Yeah, there's a few notes I took that I'll share, but um, before I do, I so so what is it that you do now to make a living, or have you retired? Uh, I won't say I've retired. Uh, what I'm doing is I well I, I sell a few paintings now and then. That's good. Yeah, what I, I want to—that's one of my things I want to talk about. So we'll come to that. But that's yeah. good to know. I'm I, glad you're doing yeah. that. I, I so, so I, I I get the not huge prices but decent prices in in, in uh, that context. I've, I've sent I'm sending off a painting to uh, Egypt, uh, one in uh, New Zealand recently. I'm, I'm beginning. I only set up a website uh, last year because I was concentrating on doing the production. So I've only got around to the stage where I've I'm taking that more seriously and but the prices are, are respectable for starting off and, and they will get better because i know I'm, I'm good uh, on that so so that's one stream the writing uh, is another stream and there's uh, thankfully i wasn't in a position where i had to the children were waiting on my uh income for that <laughs> yeah yeah good well that's that's a dream of mine too is to to get through with the management of the Check Institute and and get to the point where I can really just spend more time with my painting and my really just totally focusing on spiritual development because I feel that that is the medicine that is probably the only medicine that's going to help humanity find itself at this point. I think that you know, and that brings up a point that the the distinction in the magic magic m a g i c equates with sleight of hand, and that's what the politicians are often up to, or the people behind the politicians. But what really has my heart is m a g i c k, which is the traditional magic of shamanic cultures and Celtic and earth based cultures, and working with nature spirits and really working with the the consciousness of nature itself to produce harmony and healing and come more in alignment with the consciousness that expresses itself through nature as opposed to trying to uh, deem nature just a, a bunch of rocks and stones and trees that we can do whatever we want with because it's dead. And, and having studied shamanism extensively and world religion extensively, I was actually just saying to my, mo- my my wife this morning, I'm reading a book called Fire in the he- Fire in the Head. It's a book about Celtic shamanism, 
and it outlines very thoroughly how the Christians came into Ireland and did everything they could do to wipe out their connection to the earth and to make all their nature deities devils and demons. And I just, the, the more I study Christianity, the more I see this is just a consistent theme around the world. And we're at this point now where that whole consciousness has led us to bringing nature to the brink of, of total destruction. And, you know, you look at things like entomologists have now found through worldwide collaborative research that bug traffic worldwide has dropped 75% in the last 50 years. And the paper that I read was titled Armageddon May Be Near because they're saying that we are so close to the tipping point where the sex organs of nature are debilitated. We're basically doing to nature what we're doing to the fish in the sea and the frogs and the tadpoles and the streams with all the chemical poisoning and, and uh, disruption of their uh, hormonal system so they can't reproduce. And people are, are, are so busy on their phones and watching the news that they really, you know, uh, a great example of this that I often cite is Jamie Oliver. You might know about this, would travel around the world giving lectures to children, and he would have flashcards that were a combination of f common fruits, vegetables, and farm animals with corporate symbols. And after doing this to thousands of children, he showed that kids between eight and 10 years of old, uh, about 90% of them could not recognize common fruits, vegetables, and farm animals, but were able to identify 100% of corporate symbols. And so, you know, we're the forces of, of uh, MAGIC for personal and political gain for the few have been going on for a very, very long time and left us in a very, very dangerous situation where people have so da dangerously lost connection with nature and the real meaning of life and what, what spirituality is and why we're here to evolve and what we're evolving into so that we can become what I call a citizen of the universe, not just a human being on one planet, that we're we're really, in, in my opinion, in a very, very dangerous situation that if we don't get as many people that have a more holistic, more integrated or integral approach to life to start sharing with intensity, then I, you know, I look into the crystal ball and say, things, things that we're going through right now are only the beginning. And, um, it's the beginning of something that's not going to turn out really well if we don't intervene and have the wise elders. You know, both of us are at the age now where we we are the elders. And it, the problem is, is that guys like me and you and Jeffrey Mishlove and many of the people he has on his shows and and uh, Deepak Chopra and and a long list of people. You know, the Ram Dosses of the world. Got, got and get so little airtime compared to all the junk people are exposed to that somehow we have to tip the scales because people are just being so dangerously, dangerously misled. There's, there's a few, as always, you incite a number of points, but I just want to say firstly that Oscar Wilde said, you know, I know you're an artist, but Oscar Wilde, and I'm an artist, so Oscar Wilde said that 
when bankers get together, they talk about art. And when artists get together, they talk about money. Well, my concern is... My my concern is what kind of art the bankers are talking about because it certainly isn't what I'm painting. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but but it was a bit funny. And when I met Sean Scully in his studio, uh, and he's he's made a lot of money out of art, he sells for millions, but uh, he says to me, you're painting. Uh, Where are you getting your money from? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, but, um, but, but the other point is that on that, uh, that I'm all in now. I mean, I, I don't care about the economic situations. I, I will look after my family, but uh, beyond that, the people are talking about what will happen to their pension in twenty years' time. They, they better wake up to what's really going on. So, so we're in a short time frame than that. So, I, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not keeping pots of pots of gold anywhere. <laughs> but uh, yeah. so. Uh, but another point about I just want to make one point, and it's a kind of defence, uh, not of the not of the, the the Catholic Church in general, but uh, one thing that is important that if you go back to the early monastic period in Ireland, the monks were of a different dom- different nature and different domain. They tried; to, they were more separate from from Rome. It was before Rome kind of reigned them in. They were close to nature. They were. Uh, they were important in relation to poetry, music. They lived out in, in nature. Uh, they 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 created ideas about nature. You had the book of the Bible and you had the book of nature. So it was there. So it was taken out subsequently. And these were the guys as well during the Dark Ages that brought writing back to 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 Europe and that you know and 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 they, they were also the herbalists. If you look in the 11th century, it was the monks. And, and the nuns that were the herbalists. And also uh, it was women were allowed into the, the medical schools in Salerno and all that. So uh, the only caveat I would say, uh, there are beautiful illuminated man- manuscripts that influence people like Jung and Hildegard uh, of Bingen. So when Jung is doing his stuff, he has his, 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 his words and his pictures. They were a unified concept and, and, and there was an influence in, in Switzerland. That was part of the heritage. They knew about herbs. They used herbs. They were the ones that were doing the healing. So uh, the only thing caveat I would say is that the the force that was there in the Celtic world was so strong that they had to adapt, and they did integrate, and they did contribute theories and philosophies. So uh, I don't want. Uh, I, I, I feel a bit of responsibility in the equation, not to tar them all with the one brush because. They were engaged in spiritual in the spiritual journey, and not in the same dogmatic way that other people who utilised the church were subsequently. Uh, and also, yeah, of, last point: a lot of the the legends uh, that we have were recorded by the the monks. Without that, uh, without that, some of the legends would have been lost. They, they were there in the oral tradition, so uh, as in relation to, to to writing. So there was something different. I I. I Place it later. I place it. The Reformation was critical in in destroying the uh, in destroying certain elements. Uh, and there's a if you look the stripping of the altars, for example, by Eamon O'Duffy, that explains all the things that were taken out uh, of in England uh, and and in, in the countries around 
by the Reformation, it was devastating, and all the knowledge that was lost, and all the attacks on centers of knowledge and centers of healing. And healing didn't come from science. Healing came from the desire to care for people and compassion, care for the community, from the shaman and from the herbalists and from the from the people that would have been described as witches. That's where it came from. So I'm all in favor of the natural magic of the of herbalism, of the deep knowledge that 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 is there, and I and I support that, and that that magic I uh, I, I, I support absolutely, and the embeddedness in in nature and the appreciation of the goddess so there's two there's two things the goddess in ourselves which usually represents the spirit uh in some ways or the uh, the goddess in nature and the subsequent uh the subsequent theories associated with science took that out of religion and, and particularly after the reformation they began to alter that and they began to move away from uh, older ideas so my 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 criticisms really come later on from uh, Reformation stroke Enlightenment, but particularly the Enlightenment and, and, and the, dominant, the dominant views that came to become the new religion of science. But I, I support you in your analysis. And the, the concept, as you're explaining about the children, is a deliberate concept because what they're doing is replacing the logos of the universe with commercial logos. It's no accident that they use the word logos to describe uh, Coca-Cola and all all these things, and they're deliberately doing that as a replacement for uh, the idea of the logos, the, the divine order in the universe. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm very clear in inside of myself on that distinction you've made in Christianity. the The distinction that I make when I'm really talking about this at length is the difference between mystical Christianity and corporate Christianity. But yes. because so few people in the world have even a concept of what mystical Christianity is, and the large majority of the problems that we have in the world today can be tracked to that beliefs, the corporate Christian belief system and in, in the entire history of it. And, you know, I don't need to reiterate it all uh, for, for for you, but if you look at the research, what I've seen in the research suggests that the Vatican is the richest corporation in the world. And when you actually study how they got that wealth, then you see exactly what I'm talking about. And the influences that have been going on for thousands of years, however long you want to attribute that movement to, at least 2,000 years, are really the very um, genus that has expressed itself in the world situation today. And you and I both know that the very mystical Christians that you're talking about, whether it be St. Hildegard of Bingen, uh, St. Bernard, uh, uh, Meister Eckhart, and, and, and that class of Christians, many of those people had to run for and fight for their lives or lost their lives because they were expressing what I call the truth of spirituality and the truth of God and the truth of unity. And, and uh, you know, I, I have studied a lot of St. Hildegard. I've studied her books on diet and met, read several of her books, watched many documentaries on her and many of the mystical Christians. And it, it actually is relatively mind-boggling that that depth of beauty 
existed alongside that magnitude of greed and coercion and control. And I feel that it is essential that those teachings have a reemergence now because we are the, 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 the way of living and relating the scientific materialist worldview, the removal of our awareness of ourselves as extensions or expressions of the spirit that lives in and as nature has led to scientific materialism, to capitalism that's coupled with consumerism. And we are so seriously exhausting the resources on the planet that if we don't reorient ourselves to a higher truth, which is what we really are, then we're going to find out the truth, but we're not going to find out the truth with any hope for tomorrow. We're going to find out the truth with the meeting with great spirit face to face. And then we're going to go, oops, we screwed that up yeah. <laughs> again. I agree. I agree with you totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you were describing uh, the the infinity symbol and the higher chakras in the upper loop and the lower in the in the lower loop, and it reminded me of one of my favorite simple definitions of God. God is a zero with a twist. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah. And also, you know, having studied topology, I really have had many visions not only in my my deep meditations on this i've had visions where spirit has shown me that the way the physical universe is created is very very much along the lines of string theory except what i see are these energies patterns of energy which you could think of almost like the benzene ring or a ring of photons holding hands and they actually twist themselves to become what the string theorists call strings. And as they spin, just like many of the myths of the great weaver, they draw energy into themselves with such intensity that it manifests as form. And my soul showed me that if you look at these strings and think of them as a Mobius strip, one aspect of the Mobius strip is what Bohm called the implicate order, and the other side of the strip is the explicate order. And so there's the gateway between is the zero-point field or source and the created universe itself. But paradoxically, they're really the, t the same thing. It's just kind of like the front half versus the back half of a mirror. If you don't have both halves, you have no reflection. And, and Bohm talked about matter in terms of frozen light. So yes. uh, my idea is that all the spiritual traditions describe spirituality in terms of light. And when you listen to priests talking about light, it doesn't register because they don't understand it. So when you look at all the great scientists, most of the great scientists we know about are known because they were studying light in some shape or other. Uh, you go back to Newton and Goethe and Einstein and quantum theory. They're studying the nature of light. Now, associated with that is an idea of the path of light. And I think it applies to both ca cases of knowledge and of spirituality is that light leads you on. It's not as if these guys have invented something. 
they're discovering what's there already and you will inevitably study it or, or, or find it because you're meant to find it the same way as light is a guide in relation to spirituality that's why we have the experience they they, they show you you're, you're on the right path there's a kind of parallel system the problem is when science thinks it has the exclusive answer you can see the light clue idea in relation to uh, Boyle, for example, who was a, a great alternative to the Newtonian view because he wanted to reconcile spirituality uh, and science. But I mean, his great, uh, he, he discovers the bioluminescence of the chicken that's, you know, the bacteria in the dark and begins to investigate that. But again, the bioluminescence was a clue. It's, it's remarkable. If you look at, it's, it's the same in the laboratories. It's often a little light that gives them a clue that there's some other dimension to this. There's some other energy in relation to radio radioactivity. And the, it, it's there in, in a number of things, as it is in relation to Pierre Curie and piezoelectricity and the idea, which still a lot of people don't know about, that you, you can get light from stones and the type of... Oh, yes. Import. And then, like, that's known from the Native Americans in, in, in uh, near in your part of the world. But, of course... We have all these quartz stones around around Ireland in sacred places. Now, that quality of light, of course, it's a clue. They know that there's something special. And then, of course, we know that quartz has unique features in relation to a whole range of high technology, as does other certain... For example, the ruby, ruby is, is another esoteric symbol. It comes up in, in a whole range of different esoteric contexts. And then we, we find the ruby being used relation to lasers and ideas that there could have been older technology but there's a clue in the nature of the thing accordance with the doctrine of signatures or elements of that that were led to certain things it's almost uh, as if we can't avoid them if we just keep observing and keeping on the path and that applies both in science and spirituality uh, the problem being that there is an intoxication with the scientific mindset that makes them believe that theirs is the exclusive answer. And that's what scientism is, the problem. Yes. A couple of things, you know, I, I don't think it's a mistake that we call an awakened person or the process of awakening the enlightenment process. Because ultimately that process is, you know, as the Sufis call it, polishing the heart. It allows us to more effectively reflect the light of spirit within us or the translucent light which in biogeometry they call the centering energy or the divon energy and so you know i think it's a spiritual journey our spiritual evolution is really a peeling away of the illusory aspects of it as you mentioned the maya of it to finally come down into the essence of what it is. And personally, one of my theories is it, it is the Maya that actually creates our sense of time. As yes. long as we're looking at an illusion, then we're in a relationship that requires time for perception. But the deeper you go into intuition, the more instantaneous the transfer of information is because you're actually acting outside of time as we know it. Yeah, 
as you know know very well, that's what all the mystics say about going beyond uh, time and space. And you have the, the the associated idea, although they say there's no etymological link between light and lightness. I think there's a clear conceptual link because lightness, uh, as opposed to heaviness, is another feature which is associated with the heart, uh, being light-hearted, and also mm-hmm. um, in relation to if you're remote viewing or out of body experience, you lose mass. Yes. Now that's a feature yes. of light. It's massless. And if you look at what all the th- difficult bits of physics uh, are about, and theoretical physics are about massless particles that behave in a different way. And when we're getting into that light dimension, it's another way that, that we have. And also, we know that enlightenment, uh, illumination, also, the word illustration means the same thing. It's become to mean something else, but it's it's all associated with with uh, becoming or closer to the light, and of course, and what, numinous, and numinous, of course, yeah. And what what is associated, lucid, and a whole range of, of of positive things. But and then, of course, the enlightenment chooses the word very, very different, very obviously. Like with logos, logos, they have to rob the idea. And replace it. It's very, very important. This is another. It's it's a zero sum game for them. So they're not going to say, okay, well, we have spiritual enlightenment and we have enlightenment. We said there's only, they say there's only one form of enlightenment. That's rational enlightenment. And not only that, we're going to take your enlightenment and we're going to replace it with this rational. So it's deliberate use. And then you have the enlightenment. We have the Illuminati. And now the Illuminati was was taking the ideas from the Illuminados, who was a various uh, Protestant and Catholic fringe groups that grew up who, uh, at various stages in the 1500s, where they said, well, we don't need all this church operation. We can do it ourselves. Uh, they were kind of forerunners of the Quakers, and, and uh, where they expressed this idea that we, they didn't need any church. So later on, the Illuminati and all these, they take these religious ideas, the spiritual ideas, and turn it into something else, and they reduce the, the holistic sense of spirituality uh, deliberately to a rational, uh, contained, and reduced element. So this this element of substitution is it happens all the time. It happens all the time. It, it's it's a, a ploy that they use be, because they indicate that although they were they may be fighting against legitimate things in relation to the overarching power of the church. The problem is that these guys often wanted to become the new church of, of science, and that that and just to re- replace out the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, it, it's um, you know when you look at this, what you've just described, and you ask yourself why do they keep doing this? It seems apparent to me through my own investigations, both in the literature and in commune with my own soul, is that if you take away the luminous light and replace it with the rational, you've also extinguished the unrational. And when we look at what love is, for example, love is completely unrational. Love is not something that you can um, weigh, measure, or predict. Uh, love is is not only the most potent, but it's the most important bonding force in the whole universe. But the 
clear thing that I see is the more illuminated any soul becomes, the more free they are, the less afraid of death they are, and the more uncontrollable they are, and therefore the more dangerous they are loose in the public. And that's why they keep trying to get rid of these people because the greatest tool for programming people, manipulating them and leveraging them is their own fear of death. And look what's going on right now. Nobody's ever seen this virus, but they believe it. They believe what they see on television as though it's actual fact. So they're just using an illusion to create another illusion. And because people aren't evolved enough to see through the game, they fall for it hook, line, and sinker. And the next thing you know, they're trapped in their houses, uh, you know, wearing double masks not moving, not breathing, living off of junk food, drinking tons of alcohol and going at each other's throats like caged animals. And all you got to do is read the book, The Human Zoo by Desmond Morris. And he shows you exactly what happens to animals when you put them in zoos. And it parallels exactly what happens to people when you put them in close quarters like large cities. And that makes people highly profitable because people's ailments and their destruction of of uh, the environment when they get upset and start ripping things apart. It, it just boils up more and more money for the corporations that, that uh, profit off of this stuff. And of course, if you can trick people into thinking that they have to have a vaccination or they're going to die, then you can make trillions of dollars off of that. And so it it's this game keeps going on and on and on. And that's what my new book's really about is why is this keep happening repetitively throughout history and and you can study history and see that these kinds of ploys are constantly going on wherever there's an emperor or ruler of any type there's almost classically manipulation of the people and using their spirituality as a means of manipulating them into thinking that they're doing what they want to do but they're not really doing what they want to do and they're believing what they think is their religion but they don't realize that it's been um it's been uh, edited, shifted, and changed. And Richard Wilhelm, in, the, in his version of the Tao Te Ching, beautifully outlines how the Chinese emperors would bring in the spiritual masters, have them train their most elite people in exactly these techniques, and then they would reconstruct the religion to use it to get people to conform in the name of Taoism or whatever the religion of the day is. So these things in my opinion, and, and really this is what I'm trying to share with people, is consciousness, if you look at Edward Edinger's definition, consciousness is a psychic substance produced not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. If you read the Law of One series by, by Ra, which is the channeled books, the Law of One, they talk very specifically about how there are always negative entities or beings in any phase of human evolution because their job is to hold up the negative polarity because if we don't have those two polarities we cannot have consciousness you can't have north without south up without down inside without outside good without bad etc so in order for the evolution of consciousness we have to act in this dialectic or field of polarities but ultimately what do you find? The, the most evolved people throughout history are capable of finding their center, depolarizing, and ultimately 
the end game of spiritual evolution is to become unconditional love in which there is no longer a negative or positive polarity. And that in Arthur M. Young's model of consciousness is the end and it is what he calls total freedom. And, and Arthur Young, of course, was light was very important and the photon and, and light coming down into nature and then going up the great uh, chain of being was very, very important. There's just, just a few points that came to mind there. Uh, I don't know if you know that Desmond Morris is still alive. Uh, he's in his 90s and he's living at wow. last, I saw, with his son uh, in Ireland. Uh, so he's still painting. He has an incredible, um, incredible volume of painting. He's not known as a painter anymore. But he was a, he's, a, he's a surrealist painter going back to the start. He's a very serious painter, um, and uh, but he's 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 still go, going strong. He's he's been quite ignored by the the media, but I mean, he's been very very influential in his life, as you know. But uh, when you talk about uh, the the zoo, this Morris's explanation, but also we have John Desmond Bernal, man from Tipperary, X-ray crystallographer significant uh, scientist in Britain who's written th the theories of the science of science that's used in, in, in China a lot in relation to the management of science, but who wrote his book, The, uh, the World of Flesh and the Devil in, in uh, 1929, which explained where science was going, which explained that uh, scientists uh, would control the world, that science should get on with its business until it was strong enough to do it at once, that scientific corporations would take over the world, that in conjunction with that, the uh, individuals would have to change because we should change from biological functions to mechanical functions, begin to replace the... Uh, so we have transhumanism there already, so it's there. He was an influential figure for Arthur C. Clarke in that. He said that because of the dangers to the earth, the scientific class and the technocratic class would have to prepare for leaving the earth. So obviously they had no, no plans to, 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 to ever fix Musk. it. Yeah, uh, so there are no plans to fix it, which is, which is interesting as well, because people think these are the saviors. Um, so he laid it out in that book, but he said that um, people wouldn't be happy, but they could be tolerated. They didn't have to be totally eradicated. They could be tolerated uh, and used as a human zoo and perhaps for experimentation, perhaps without their knowledge. He's laid that out. He's a standard uh, He's a standard scientist. He was the one that kind of led to or inspired Crick and Watson in, in their studies because of his, his, his study of particular molecules, tobacco mo molecules. Uh, John, Desmond Bern uh, John Desmond Bernal. He was born John. in Desmond Bernal. He was born in, um, in Tipperary, believe it or not. But he, his main his main career was in Britain, uh, in Cambridge, and uh, very very influential. He was a Stalinist, uh, and he supported Stalin against like, or, uh, in the context of the crop experiments and that. Um, so, but I mean, he lays it out there, and and that's not uncontroversial. So there's nothing new about. So people talk about conspiracies. Uh, it's laid out, and the year before, from a near neighbour of his, so just up the road, H.G. Uh, Wells in London, of course, uh, wrote The Open Conspiracy, who laid out that it wasn't a, a hidden conspiracy, it was an open conspiracy. Now, we should, they should establish the scientific world government. 
So uh, I'm only, when I'm making my arguments about what's happening, I'm only using scientists. I'm not using any secret things. I, I, I do use evidence that I have myself, but uh, in relation to people I've met or, or, or public domain knowledge, but this is what scientists said. So the, in this context, of course, as H.G. Wells has laid out, religion is gone. And of course, spiritual, spirituality will be gone, except for the worship of science. So there's, there's no debate in my head anymore. This, this path is laid out, and everything which has, ha has happened is consistent with the hypothesis that they laid out. It's, 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 it's remarkable. So when people begin to look for complex explanations, look at what the scientists have said before these books disappear and are taken off, the, which they will be. Totally. And, and you know, many people accuse me of being a conspiracy ther theorist, and I have to remind them a conspiracy is only a conspiracy when somebody's making a statement without any evidence to back it, but there's tons of evidence that what you just described is going on and has been going on for a long time. So I say it's only a conspiracy to the uneducated or the highly programmed that are too insecure in their own capacity for truth to look into the evidence. So therefore they just stick to their little, like a turtle with its head and legs stuck in its shell, it won't go outside of its own belief system for fear that it might be wrong. And the reality of it, it doesn't matter whether you're wrong or right. All you got to do is look at the fact that we're losing freedom of speech. We have an entire cancel culture. We have AI technology that's monitoring your every move. And the list is very, very long. We're losing sovereignty of our bodies. We're being told you know, what we have to be injected with, or we can't have a driver's license or fly on an airplane. It, you know, I describe it as the military industrial complex has reached a point where it cannot afford to start another world war because there's too many nuclear weapons. So what it's done is it's become an autoimmune disorder and it's turned its forces inward and used it as a system of monitoring and making its own people the targets in order to keep that massively profitable industry profitable and it is in bed with the industry of science because who do you think develops all these technologies the so-called scientists and technicians and so you know when you start looking at what's going on there's no conspiracy at all it's only a conspiracy for people that are sound asleep and 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 uh, are are addicted to watching television and don't have enough uh capacity for constructive thinking to realize that they're believing everything at face value, no matter what comes on their screen. But, but one of the funny things about the notion of conspiracy from a legal perspective is that the people that use the idea of conspiracy most is the government. So it was used in one <laughs> yeah. of the charges against Charles Manson. Uh, I, I think they used it in relation to Julian Assange. Uh, it's always used when the case is weak. It's very, very, very funny. And uh, the 1890 Sherman Act, Outlaws conspiracy in the United States is one of the most significant antitrust, the significant antitrust legislation that could have been used to stop these uh, companies that an individual can use to sue these companies. I'm, I've been very surprised that there haven't been more antitrust actions, competition actions, because in these cases, they, I think there's still this, this uh, ability that if you win damages, you get treble damages. It's highly unusual for a competition uh, breach, and they should have investigated more uh, personal actions against the uh, against uh, the big companies 
Uh, but in that, it outlaws conspiracies. And in the context of, con so it's a standard thing in all competition laws all around the world. They know there's going to be conspiracies. The government legislates against conspiracies. And not only that, when it comes to proving conspiracies, they don't have to prove intention in it because it's almost impossible to find the time when they got together and said, okay, now we're going to fix the prices. Especially in oligopolistic markets, what happens is there's someone that leads the price. They might be playing golf and say, well, listen, uh, uh, you know, I think prices are going to go up, whatever, nods and winks and whatever. It's, it's almost difficult to find. So what they look at is evidence of coordinated action. Now, coordinated action, we can see it all, all the time. But the irony of this idea of saying thing is only a conspiracy or conspiracy theory is the government are the people that in their legislation utilize this concept and accept this concept and it's accepted by the Supreme Court as existing. It exists in contexts where people want to hide their, their true action. You hide your true action, for example, if you want to manipulate a market where you substitute cooperation for competition, it's standard practice. So the idea that there's no conspiracies is a real, a real nonsense, a real no-go. It's, it's inconsistent with the jurisprudence in the United States itself and the government always uses it when it has a weak case and it's prosecuting someone. So it's, it, it's, it's just a nonsense. But, uh, so we have also H.G. Wells saying it's an open conspiracy now. Uh, so that, that, that's in this book. It's, uh, anyone can see it. I, I think it's uh, out of copyright even, it's, if I'm not mistaken. I forget when he died. But the, uh, anyone can have a look at that book. So it, it, they, scientists have said it. So the idea that there's nothing uh, is crazy. And when they have laid out so specifically and were correct, that's the frightening thing. Um, so I, I describe it, and I'm writing a pamphlet uh, to try and make it a, a bit simpler, perhaps, uh, called The Empire of Scientism, that what we're yes. facing is a new empire of scientism, not science, but the control, the technocratic control uh, uh, of people. And in that process, there's going to be a colonization. The colonization is not of any new territory. The colonization is of the individual, of their mind of and the ultimately mind. of the spirit. So they're going to colonize, yeah. and the colonization has happened. Uh, so it, it has started. And my fear is that the straitjacket is nearly fastened totally, that our room for maneuver is getting smaller. But there's no question that we're in a technological straitjacket, and people have been so hypnotized and so. Uh, awake, unawake, and that's another word that they've taken. They've taken the word awake to being a bad thing now, woke, etc. So they're trying to uh, to manipulate the uh, that concept and substitute uh, as well. But uh, the empire of scientism is what is happening. Is what we're witnessing, and I know we're witnessing it because this is what the people uh, and people like Bernal, who are in the end of that, the British Empire realized was the next stage using using control using cybernetics just across the road from where he lived in the 1940s the cybernetic movement in the, in the united kingdom came together cybernetics control governance all this stuff is about and, and their interest in consciousness is to control consciousness it's not so you'll have a great experience and, and develop so un unfortunately that's the evidence coming from their practices yeah, and, and this brings up an issue I've talked about on a couple of previous podcasts. I just did a great one with Ben Stewart, who's looked into this a lot. And 
One of the real issues we're facing that very few people are awake to is that they don't realize that what's happening is that this process is actually changing what it means to be human. If you look at Jung's concept of the self, he uses it in multiple ways, but one of the key things about Jung's concept of the self is that the self includes everything that is essential to sustain you. So instead of myself, the self can be related to as the family. It's related to as the fields where you get your crops and your food from. It's related to as the, the moon, which regulates the tides. It's the sun that, that gives light to make everything grow. So what it means to be human as we know it is that we are dependent upon earth, water, fire, and air in the matrix of space. Therefore, if we look at what happens when people stop eating real food, drinking clean water, and breathing properly or breathing air that's toxic, they become riddled with diseases. And because the body is a mirror of the psyche, what happens is it's like when you distort a mirror, it'll make you look short and fat or long or skinny. So as the mind of the individual is being pulled out of its connection to the earth and is being brought into the consumption of processed foods, drug use, instead of dealing with your problems in a holistic nature, uh, vaccinations that are now going to include RNA that are going to change your DNA forever, which means we don't even know what you're going to be anymore. AI really is a concept that sees everybody as data, not as a living, breathing organism that has a need for connection to the earth and whose bodies in which our consciousness finds itself alert to itself because of the construct of the nervous system and the body. It is a a vehicle for self-awareness. I believe that we we begin as souls in this 3D environment with a physical body because it actually slows mind down enough and it ties spirit up and matter enough so that we can actually survive the powers of our own mental abilities and creative abilities. Because if we are too destructive and we're not in matter, we can create destruction in the astral plane or the higher planes as fast as we think. So it's as though that the more ascended souls have created this perfect little sandbox for us where we can integrate spirit and consciousness through matter and polarity where destructive tendencies can't cause too much damage because everything's locked into matter. But ultimately what I'm saying and what my real concern is, is that we now have a massive percentage of the world population that hasn't got a concept of what food is, the importance of water, the importance of breathing, awareness that breathing is part of every spiritual tradition because the breath is what anchors the soul and the body. And so what we're doing is we're actually becoming less and less human and more and more moving towards transhuman and now you've got all this talk of digital mirroring and storing your soul on a hard drive. It's like you can't store a soul on a freaking hard drive. You got the you can store data on a hard drive. But what the soul is cannot be stored on a hard drive or you just don't understand the word soul. That was like saying you can put God on a hard drive for God's sakes. So 
I, I see that we're at, not only are we at one of the most dangerous times in human evolution because we have the power to completely destroy ourselves and the planet, but we're actually completely and utterly losing touch with our metaphysical roots, our spiritual roots, our roots in the earth, and the fact that who we are as human beings is an expression not only of the earth, but of the cosmos. And when you turn that all in just to data and, and marketable stuff and machinery, you know, Rudolf Steiner said, man will continue to invent technologies outside of himself until he either realizes that everything he's invented is an inferior copy of a technology within himself or he destroys the planet. The question is, which will come first? And that is too true. Yeah, that, that's very well, well <coughs> eloquently put, Paul, and um, in total agreement with you. Uh, of course, Marshall McLuhan explained how all this stuff is an extension of our nervous system. People don't really understand that that's a reflexive relationship. So a lot of these guys that have become the symbolic logicians, the magicians that are driving this thing as well, their brain is being changed by their reflexive relationship with the technology, and they're changing uh, our brain too. And of course, uh, to many, in many extent, as above, so below, and we are microcosms, and we're like little biomes. And as you know well from all your work on, on the gut and what it is that we need bacteria to, we work with other things around us. We're part of the, the environment. Um, but the implication of this, if you look at Harari and other people, they say that we are algorithms. That that, that they say it quite openly, and people have celebrated this book. I have no idea why. It's craziness, but they, they say that we are algorithms. Now, I, I, was, I didn't, wasn't able to participate in this discussion the other night in the Galileo Commission, which are some of the more enlightened scientists looking at these issues with some very uh, distinguished people. But there were, I listened to the discussion afterwards, and they were explaining how this idea is wrong in scientific terms. But even when you get down to concepts that you think you know, like information, it's not established what these concepts are, as Wittgenstein uh, showed how, how difficult it is even to, to conceptually understand what uh, the idea of life is. Uh, and it's um, incredible when you see all these ministers for health, all these health professionals, it's, it's remarkable how they don't look very healthy. A lot of them. Oh, my really, God. And, and, and Believe it's quite, me. It's quite amazing. It's like you say, here's our new minister for finance. And by the way, he's bankrupt. You know, it's quite incredible. Or, or, or here's our new president. He's been bankrupt multiple times and he's a fucking criminal. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but you, so, so that idea. But it's clear when you go back to people like John Lillian, that they anticipated that we would li be living in. You know, you would anticipate it would be living in glass domes and all that because they're making the natural world seem like an enemy. So the sun is bad now. You can't go out in the sun. They're gonna the water is. It's unbelievable. Uh, you can't walk. You have to get into a car to move. The, the, you have to use the technology. They turn us into cyborgs. They're forcing us use the technology. Uh, now my daughter has to. The eldest daughter has to stay at home, and 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 this great convenient material or this device is used as a trap as it always was intended to do and if you look at the idea there's a kind of almost a psychopathic joy that these uh, kind of trophy elements that you see in some of these things because a web it, what's a web for a web is to trap people catching what's a net for yeah. is to trap people catching and even, yeah and if you look and links even are links on a chain 
the if you look back at some of the old conjuring things, some of the old spells they use when they're trying to conjure up. I found one actually that that had you know talking about the net and the web and and it was kind of a bit a bit scary that you see the people don't believe that there are such people that would conceive things as a tool to confine the docile people but that's what it is the web uh, is not merely a description of an inactive thing this is what the purpose of it is and we're getting stuck by the day in uh, in the web and uh, the, the great spiders uh, are watching us unfortunately well, here's one for you. I used to work on a gill netting fishing boat, so I have lots of experience with nets. And depending on the size of the fish you want to catch, you change the size of the holes in the net. Well, we can take that hole and call them gates. Bill gates. Hmm. There's one of your webcasters right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, uh, it's remarkable uh, that we have, we have yielded up. We've been hypnotized by the, the toy element, by the, by the technology of it. And even in the spiritual domain, you'll see it very soon. There will be devices that people can get to give them the spiritual experience to substitute for the, you can have an enlightenment. There it is. That's what enlightenment is. That's on the way as well. And that's another. There's tons of it. That's another stuff. I, I don't like the idea uh, that the, the Dalai Lama is very into the, the studying Buddhism, you know, for, for the benefit of science. I don't like this uh, this idea because all these ideas are turning us inside out. They're, they're taking the inside, so it's visible. And this was the great. This was the great benefit that the great process of evolution, God consciousness, whatever, gave us gave us separate ability to experience consciousness ourselves in an integrated way. But we have that. We, were, we weren't set out as a, as a big lump or a big mass, a big mycelium. We're individuals who have the opportunity to evolve spiritually, and that's the great gift. And that's the great thing that they want to take away through networking consciousness. And even in, in some of the Timothy Leary and that, you can see the mixture, the wrong direction of psychedelics mixing in with this information yes. idea. So uh, it's critical that people have a very clear view of what the dangers are in some of these processes. Yeah, it's it's extremely true. And, um, you know, this whole thing of algorithms, I, I, I countless is the number of people that have come to me that are using biohacking devices to guide their diet, their exercise and everything else. And two things. One, they're coming to me because they're all screwed up. I go, well, like, if you think that that calorie counter can actually determine how many calories you just burned, you're crazy because I can list 150 factors that can manipulate how much calories you're burning at any given instant, and you're actually operating on an algorithm. And, oh, by the way, you see that lady over there next to you? She weighs 250 pounds. She's obese. She's wearing the same calorie counter. And look to your left. There's some skinny little marathon runner who's consistent in their training, takes good care of themselves as a real athlete, and they're wearing the same thing, and you're all running on the same treadmill, getting exactly the same number of calories burnt in 30 minutes, and you all believe it because you're all completely diluted by so-called science. And so I'll give a, a couple of examples of this. 
algorithms, you, you know, look at, at what are the trends that pe- lots of people do? What's the most likely thing somebody's going to do? So we could say, in a sense, the mean or the average. But I, I was once studying Marie-Louise von Franz, and she made a key point. She said, do you realize you could have a two-ton stack of stones with an average weight of one kilograms and weigh every single stone, and there may not be one single stone that weighs two kilograms? And, and that's what I tell people. You are one of the stones in the pile. But whether or not you weigh two kilograms is completely and utterly unique, and that's what makes you an individual. And to the degree you rely on technology, you stop paying attention to your own internal process, and then you're out of touch with yourself. And if your battery goes dead or your or the power goes out, you're worse than lost because you have no relationship with your internal guidance system and your own instincts and your own survival mechanisms, which are there to help not only keep you alive, but to help you evolve. And are you familiar with the technology called the Aura Ring? Um, I can't recall. I perhaps, but I don't recall at the moment, no. Maybe not. It's a, very, it's a very exotic ring you wear that downloads into a computer, oh, and it'll tell you tons of data about yourself, how you slept, but athletes use it because it's supposed to tell them when they're ready for hard training. And it gives you a myriad of things and people have just fallen hook, line and sinker for this shit. Well, one of the athletes that I coached for two and a half years that is, has all since I rehabbed him has gotten now, I think two world titles and, and achieved several Russian uh, masters titles in kettlebell lifting, which is extremely hard to do. And when I, when all the athletes I coach, I teach them how to connect to their soul, how to pay attention to their own heart rate, their own levels of exertion, symptoms of digestion, dysfunction, mental, emotional relationships, how their body responds, how to read their body, because the body is actually the sounding board of the psyche. And so Mike got given the aura ring to be one of their test subjects to help promote it. And I, I prophesied something for him. I had taught him a system that's too elaborate to explain in a few minutes, but I, I have a system I teach athletes to monitor their heart rate every morning. And I show them through my own research, years of research on athletes, I was able to identify that if your resting morning heart rate jumps up three beats, it means that you're under stress and you got to be very, very careful. If it jumps up four beats, you got to cut your training volume in half that day. If it jumps up five beats over your weekly average, then you've got to take the day off and just do restorative work, no physical exercise, only what I call working in saunas, stretching, and restorative therapies like cold baths or whatever technologies you have at hand for restoration or go get a massage or see an acupuncturist. So Mike used this system and he still uses it to this day. And I said, I want you to compare. And there's also a questionnaire I built that each athlete fills out every day called a daily readiness assessment. So it looks at hormonal stress. It looks at physical stress and it looks at psychological stress. And it is a score system. So the higher your score, the more stress you're under. And they correlate that with their heart rate findings to regulate the volume and intensity of their training so that they greatly reduce the risk of injury. 
Well, Mike called me up one day and he said, Paul, you're not going to believe it. You were right. He said, I want to tell you what happened. He said, a couple of days ago, I started coming down with the flu and my heart rate jumped up to five beats above average. But when I got up in the morning feeling like shit, my aura ring told me I was ready for a hard workout. (laughs) I said, there you go. Why? Because you're not Mike Salemi. You are a statistic. You are in an algorithm and the algorithm has no capacity to measure the individual circumstances of your physical, emotional, mental, dietary, and environmental reality. And I said, now think of how many athletes worship that damn piece of technology and are leading themselves right into trouble in the name of science. It's worse than that as well. Now, uh, today I saw that in Britain, I I didn't pay too much attention to it, but it appears that uh, the Prime Minister said that doctors would be able to, if you're obese, to prescribe a tracker to follow you. So the government now is, is, is going to sneak in there and make it mandatory. And this is, this is the problem. And, and um, imagine how many lives can be destroyed by forcing people to, to get whatever technology. And it's going to continue because people won't say no. They keep accepting all this kind of mass control technology. Not to talk about all the surveillance, not to talk about surveillance, capital surveillance, society, the fact that uh, every movement is going to be controlled. And especially now that they've got us at home, they, we can be forced to, to transact all, our, all our, our business from home. So that's just the implications of the existing technology without imputing any nefarious uh, intention or, or, or conceiving conspiracies or whatever. That's the obvious implication of all the existing technology as you've given a very good example uh for so yeah we're in we're, we're in we're in a, a very sticky web that's we, we have to pay attention to paleo valley makes some incredible superfood bars that are a lot different than what most people think of as a superfood bar i've got autumn smith the creator of their superfood bars right here to tell you about them autumn what is so unique about your awesome superfood bars Well, our superfood bars are unique because not only do they not contain refined sugar or GMOs or any of the freaky additives that you'll find in most bars or gluten or anything, but they're just whole foods. They're low in sugar. They're made with superfoods like ginger and broccoli and acerola cherry and collagen from grass-fed and finished animals, which we all know is like a fountain of youth. And so the best part about them, though, is probably the flavor. They come in chocolate and apple cinnamon, and we have so many more delicious flavors to come, and they're easy to put in your bag to feed for you with your kids. And I hope you love them all as much as I do. All you have to do to get access is go to paleovalley.com, and you can use the code CHECK15, that's lowercase C-H-E-K, 15, and you can get 15% off. And I hope you love them. That's awesome. And just so you know, that's P A L E O valley.com. And I know you're going to love Autumn Superfood Bars. Hi, everybody. I've looked into magnesium supplements in my many years as a therapist and found, unfortunately, most of them are junk until the day Wade Lightheart handed me his magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers which is a very, very specialized product that they did a lot of research on. Wait, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about what makes Magnesium Breakthrough so unique and so potent. Well, number one is that we realized that 
different types of magnesium are absorbed by different parts of the body. So we tested virtually every magnesium product there was on the market, and it came down to seven different ones that produced the best aspects or best effects over the broadest amount of people. We combine them without any weird excipients or, you know, some of the chemical agents that other companies use. We don't use any of that stuff. And we combined it with humic and fulvic acid as well as B6 to make sure that it's absorbed and utilized by the body. That's excellent. I really love it because one of the things I love about all your products is I can actually turn people on to them. They buy them. And I've never had a single person say to me, those products don't work. Everybody that I know has continued to buy Bioptimizer's products to enhance their life. Where can people get it and what's their discount? Just go to www.magbreakthrough.com slash living40 and put in your coupon code Paul10 and you get a 10% discount. And of course, everything has a 100% money back guarantee. You can't get better than that. Enjoy. Did you know that symbiotica means harmony? And... You're really likely to enjoy my podcast with Sherveen Jaffariah, the founder of Symbiotica. Symbiotica is an amazing company that makes excellent products to aid healing, enhance longevity, and improve performance at all levels of your being, from your spiritual practices to your athletic endeavors. I highly recommend you go to symbiotica.com and check out their top-notch organically sourced products that include excellent tasting supplements like their Synergy Vitamin B12, which elevates energy naturally, to their Shilajé minerals, which help you better regulate your hormonal system. Their biocharge-activated coconut charcoal is an excellent detox support and removes toxins and poisons from the body quickly and non-invasively. Their organic longevity formula is one of my friends and students' favorites. They rave about it. I really enjoy their Regenesis liposomal glutathione for its amazing antioxidant powers, which is really helpful for anyone that enjoys vaporizing tobacco and herbs like I do. They also have great immune support products, water filtration options for drinking and showering, and some cool clothing and more. When you go to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com and use your Living 4D discount code, which is capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15 on checkout, you get 15% off anything they sell and you won't be disappointed. Enjoy Symbiotica. Having studied enough history and studied the human being and the human psyche and everything to do with what it means to... To, to be a holistic health practitioner, one of the things that's very evident to me is that people become extremely passive without a legitimate challenge that they have to face. And when you look at the constant reoccurrence of wars, for example, and strife in the public, if you take people and you just give them everything they want, they become very, very passive. But when you put a person in a legitimate situation, for example, I call the pain teacher, the, the pain teacher is a signifier for when pain shows up in your life, it's there to guide you and teach you and you must engage it consciously. And every time you engage pain consciously, you grow and you become wiser and more capable of living more fully and helping other people through the same trap that you've just resolved. But if you just give people everything they want and you take away their need for engaging the climb, you know, you have to train to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. You have to train to be an Olympic athlete. You have to deal with challenge and pain and you have to learn to manage your will and your discipline 
And you have to learn to have not only willpower, but what I call won't power. Willpower is just stepping on the gas pedal, but sometimes you got to know when to step on the brake. So won't power is as important as willpower. But if you just pacify people with sugar, television, video games, pornography, uh, government handouts, then they become extremely placid and they don't engage their own growth process. So I actually feel that it's very possible that the collective of human beings is calling forth a means of forcing them into a situation where they must decide what they want to become and if they want freedom. And those people, like the ones that decide to do the work to become a competitive athlete or a successful businessman or to have a healthy body, will actually have exactly the impossibility wall they need to climb in order to to move into true spiritual evolution and freedom. And as Osho said, it takes 6 billion people to produce one truly enlightened person, meaning that most people are just too passive to do the work. And so I think that out of all this, if you put enough pressure on coal, you get a diamond. And I think that we are now reaching a level of pressurization of the coal, i.e. the average person, that we're going to probably see the emergence of genius children and genius young people and elders like you and I that can foster that genius. And it's going to produce a new class of mystics or magicians that are actually going to be able to outsmart the web weavers. And it will create an opportunity for a potential divide between those that want freedom or i.e. want to be a Gnostic Christian versus those that want to be passively subdued by corporate Christianity as an analogy. Well, going back to your original your original or one of your earlier questions about the the finance and all that, I'm not in this for the money. I'm in this for the because this is and I'm going for the rest of my life, I'm going to argue against this scientocracy, the empire of scientism uh, for myself, but for other people. I've, I've no fear of death, no fear of uh, whatever. There can be, you know, in relation to the journey you've been on, a fear becomes something else. And so yeah. that's not my motivation. It's not my motivation. I would have been very, very happy at home doing me things, painting, minding my own business. Uh, it was only when I, when, I, when I wrote the book, when, I, when last year, when I did a first interview with Jeff in, in, in January, I did a, a few seri series of interviews. And I warned in that, in that video on globalization that we were now entering the end game on, and, and that we were going, to, uh, we're going into the science, scientocracy. And science. Uh, that was before this. It, it's, it's dated in March, but we recorded it in January. This was before this stuff uh, blew up because I had a sensation. I wrote a book. I'm not saying it's a great book, Blue Lies September. It was a complex book. It was about other things. But I had the, uh, uh, it's about a, it was a natural disaster in London that led to draconian legislation, repression, and a technocratic society. So it was in my psyche. I could see it coming. I could see this, this coming in, in London when I was there, and I fit into that tradition. So uh, it, it's not strange. And there was one of the old guys, and he was wondering whether this was the, the final big the big control mechanism. And he was saying he didn't think so in this instance in the book because he said that it's just funny how, how fiction kind of 
he said in his head, because all the he believed it was a Roman, it was the Roman Empire. What we were facing was a recurrence of the Roman Empire that had never disappeared. And therefore, he said the signaling mechanisms will be something with a Roman reference. And then all of a sudden, I hear about coronavirus, corona, Latin for crown, uh, C, yeah. and Ovid. Ovid is a Roman poet, you know, so you say, okay, well, <laughs> but, uh, that's too much. Yeah. When you talk about, when you talk about, of course, we have uh, Huxley was the one that predicted that we have, they were going to make people love their servitude. And that's what, and it's very interesting. There's a, in 1956 and 1957, you had three concepts that were defined, which indicated where the world was going and that for the next generation. We had a, the letter from Humphrey Osman, the psychiatrist, to Huxley, which used the word psychedelic. So that comes into the, the mainstream. Yep. So I'm not talking about yes. traditional entheogens, but uh, psychedelic comes in. In the same 56, 57, we had the, the, the term artificial intelligence with McCarthy uh, yep. uh, and, and others. Um, and, and, and Norbert and Werner and cybernetics. Yeah, but, but 57 in, in, in particular. And also 57, we had transhumanism. So that triangle yes. is not an accident. So, And also, when you look at, say, McKenna's bent and uh, his direction and Leary's direction, the psychedelic thing, you know, drop out, don't get involved, let the thing go on. You can come out of your body. It's the same philosophy as in transhumanism, escape from the limitations of your body. So, unfortunately, there is a negative, a negative side uh, of that concept. But of that direction which is distinct from the traditional concept from indigenous knowledge of spiritual development and intelligence it's a distinct concept and now we yes, face the is. prospect of a lot of people pushing pharmaceutical derivatives uh, not in the t in, in the total context and as you know better than anybody else when you extract something from a plant you're ignoring a couple of other active ingredients that may interact to have a completely different effect on the body. And then you're taking yes. it out of its holistic uh, context. So now yes. they're going to flog uh, all these uh, psychedelics that people can have at home to make them love their imprisonment. So they can believe that they have spiritual evolution when they're sitting at home, when they're losing touch with people, when they're uh, it's bad enough when we use when people use motor cars enough and they, they they don't walk anymore they they use machines instead of if their legs if you look at the human figure you'd say well that figure is destined to walk and perambulate and and uh, and then we begin to not communicate because they you see two people sitting beside each other mobile phones and they don't talk losing social skills or or yeah text messaging yeah and side then, by side I've seen it in airports unbelievable and then they are. Uh, we're separated physically now, and from your studies of of, of massage and that, it's a it, it's a basic human need. It's a basic mammalian need, as as Des Desmond Morris talks about grooming the whole lot. But it's a very very basic, and it's a basic spiritual need. Uh, and that is, it, it, we're being isolated. We're being made to be afraid of other people, and these are going to pro have profound effects on children. A lot of children are going to be scarred by these by these years. And the cruelty and sadism. I just wrote the word children on my paper right here mm -hmm. as you were talking.
because of the comment that I want to share when you're finished. But yes, keep keep going. I'm totally dancing with you. There is a there is a a, a cruelty in that a, a cruelty uh, again. The contrast in my head between climbing a tree with the apple blossoms coming out and the sunshine, having a bit of fun with a laughing child, uh, talking about nature, joking, messing, competing, taking risks. And a child that is compelled to sit at home with a machine uh, to become indoctrinated. And, and I looked back at The Road Ahead by Bill Gates, and he's very, very clear in the book. He said, uh, we need to get children hooked on, on computers. And if you think about it, this is the language. Yeah, this is the language. That, that, that's the words he used. I didn't register with me when I, I, I read it years ago, but... It's very, very clear. We need to get them hooked. So they, they, there's a process, a deliberate, again, a confession by the people involved that they're trying to addict people. So that they're, and that's not a good word to use about another human being that when you want to make them dependent. They have made us dependent. It's the same pattern and strategy that a drug pusher uses when they're trying to get people addicted. Here's a little bit, here's a little bit. And it's the same thing with the financial system hitherto people forget that the bill hasn't come in for this yet so what we have been dealing with is a very rude waiter who has done who's confined us and given us a bad meal and we're only reaching the stage where now we go and get this now now we we get the exorbitant bill that we have to pay with the big bouncers and the weaponry that's going to make sure that we pay up whether we like it or not because we've notionally consumed and that's going to happen people don't realize that the consequences of that yet. So while they're while they've been happy receiving income in, in a lot of cases at home, I'm not not criticizing them, but they've been forced to. But they will be told. Well, they don't know any better. No, they're ignorant. Yeah, and they will be told as well that it was their decisions, as well as all the businesses that will never come back as we move towards a society which is it will be like what they used to have in Britain when the big employers. You worked for a factory and you work there and you work all the hours God gives you, and then you get paid at the end of the week. So you get your you get your money, but you have to pay it in the in the in the store in in, in the factory store. So yes. this is what this is yeah. what we're going to get in, in in the future. Some big uh, as a call, uh, th- th- there's a a name that the Amazon that are using for some some big center. You'll order your goods, which are which are currency that they they give you a notional currency, digital, and you'll you'll spend it in that context, and your 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 choices will be limited. All these things are made available because we have succumbed to these uh, dependency powers. Sorry. Yes, and, and you know, I I wrote the word children down because by the time I was about forty seven, I reached a point where if lightning struck me and took me, I would be happy because I was so ready to explore the rest of the truth of myself and the cosmos that I felt like I had to get out of this cage of of what we call Earth. But then I got a shocking surprise at 54 when Mana came along and then another one a year and a half later so see mono mono's five so about two and a half years later then zoe came along 
So here I am now, uh, I'll be 60 this summer. I got a 41-year-old son from my first marriage. And then from my third marriage, I have, and I'm, and my second and and third, Penny and, and Angie, we all live together as a family. So I, I'm making that distinction because my second wife and my third wife are still with me. But my third wife is the source of my my two children. But the the the... the experience of those children coming blew my heart wide open and it brought me back in touch with more of the child in myself and the magic and the mystery and the play and the just the the sheer beauty of a child and the the intent exploration and the willingness to just climb any tree and go down any hole and 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 the vulnerability of the child and we refused to let them vaccinate our children, and it was a big, big battle. In fact, I I told them without a long story, but I told the nurses, we've done our research. I've consulted one of the world's leading experts on vaccinations. We're using homeopathics, and we do not want any of these vaccinations. And I'll give you a quick example of the kind of crap I went through. One of the nurses would not stop going at Angie to get vitamin K. And I said, why do you want us to put a synthetic vitamin into our child when we've evolved through nature for potentially 2 million years without any synthetic vitamin K? Her response was, well, it helps the blood clot. And if your child was to get cut, it might bleed to death. I said, there's been myriads of children that have been cut throughout evolution, and they did not bleed to death. So I said, I'll tell you what, what are the side effects? She said, I don't know. I said, please bring me the box. Guess what the first side effect listed on the box was? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I can... The first side effect was liver failure. Stop. And they went worse. They got worse from there. And I said, okay, you want me to inject my child with a laboratory copy of a synthetic, of a vitamin in order to so-called make my child's blood clot at the risk of liver failure and a long list of other extremely dangerous situations. So what you're telling me is you want me to expose my child to the risk of dying right now instead of giving it a chance to go on its own evolutionary path, I said, do, do you have any common sense at all? Or are you completely and utterly brainwashed because you get paid by these organizations? I said, isn't it a bit of a shocker that you as a nurse have probably given thousands of these injections and you did not even know any of the side effects? Hmm. I said that you want me to succumb to that level of stupidity for my own child? So she just sort of threw her hands in the air and walked out of the room because she didn't have a response for that. But the punchline is the day we were supposed to check out of the hospital, Angie ended up having to have a C-section due to uh, last minute complications. Uh, and Mana was a breech baby, so he was upside down. But um, her his heart rate dropped to 50% of what it should be when she was just sitting and resting. And they thought potentially he had a cord wrapped around his neck or something like that. So you know, we, we made the decision to do the C-section because the doctor who we chose very carefully said, Paul, you, you can try a natural childbirth, but 
if your son's heart rate is already 50% below normal at resting, imagine the stress he's going to be under going through the birth canal and he could be born brain dead or something like that. And if you want me to take that risk, it's your choice. I'll do it. So we both opted to take the safer route, but that's why we're in the hospital. We had two midwives. We had a whole bathtub, a birthing tub for a, a, a water b- a birth and everything. And it was just the last checkup. And it was so interesting because the day she went for her final checkup that morning, I said to, I have a very bad feeling about this. I said, I don't know why, but something in my gut tells me this is not going to turn out well. And sure enough, at two o'clock that afternoon, I got a phone call with her in tears saying they want me to have a C-section immediately. And she told me the story. I said, I knew it. I knew something like this was going to happen. But anyhow, here's the punchline. The day we're supposed to check out of the hospital, I'm sitting in the room with Angie packing up all her stuff and a man and a woman dressed in a very uh, classic uh, government style plain blue suit with a tie show up at the door with the head nurse and they say, Mr. Check, we need you to leave while we interview your wife. I said, what what the hell do you need to leave to interview my wife? There's nothing that can't be said between us. We're married. She said, well, by law, you have to leave. And they wouldn't tell me anything else. She had called the social services to come investigate whether or not I was abusing my wife and children or whether or not we were fit to be parents because we would not let them vaccinate our children with all this toxic horse shit. And since then, I've met at least three other people, all holistic people who went through the same charade. It's it's uh, the, the frightening thing. I don't want to depress people too much, but now we have ceded a lot more power to the authorities through this process. They have they have taken so many rights that have taken a long time to, to to be built up, and they have propagated the view successfully that there is no limit on what you can do once you have a scientific justification and a white suit. So you know, coming up to people's doors and and doing tests, or in China doing anal swabs for you know so arrive at your door and give you an anal swab and, and you know, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. And also, the powers that can be exerted over children against uh, decent parents, uh, that they will they will be abused. I've no doubt about that. You know, it's very, it, it's all, I know there's a lot of problems historically, say, you take the Catholic Church and it's good that they're brought to light. But it's funny the way the focus on things 50 years ago, at a stage when there's actually a lot of problems going on now in relation to uh, taking a, the deconstruction of rights. And the, the, the difficult thing is, it's not only is there a deconstruction of rights, but associated with that is the deconstruction of the idea that you are a human, that you are an individual. Uh, so this process of transhumanism, post-humanism, facilitated by people that think that they're clever, come on utilizing certain of the, the, the French theorists philosophically uh, are being marshaled by people that realize that they can be used to strip people uh, of their rights. So there, there's endless pressure uh, to do so. But as a lawyer, the in the common law world, the amount of rights that have been deconstructed uh, in the last year is, is equivalent to 
whatever environmental ter terms, burning down half of the, the, the Amazon rainforest in, in legal terms. You're not going to get these yes. things back. These things, these things were worked out bit by bit, worn away over hundreds of years through, through loads of disputes. And the legal profession as well is spineless. And I'll say that to any of them, uh, the, 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 I, I'm hearing nothing from the legal profession in any of the countries about the, the denial of rights. And then when you look at statistics, without getting into all that statistics and all that, but when you look at act the actual excess mortality, and when you compare it with models that have been hyperinflated and known to be, and they don't match reality, and with the, with the most cursory knowledge of statistics, anybody should know that the quality of statistics are only uh, as good as the quality of the assumptions on which they're, 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 they're made. And if you don't have robust assumptions underneath it, anything after that is can be nonsense. And there's headlines in the paper again today about all the people that were registered with uh, the deaths of uh, attributable to COVID and they didn't uh, die in that purpose. And they have abandoned ancient practices in relation to autopsies and how you classify the cause of death. All that has disappeared and nobody cares. So it doesn't matter what statistics are, are, are prevented. If they're not uh, done properly, they're not going to be uh, reliable. So, I mean, there's a, a, apart from all those issues, my fear is not about about the present crisis. My, my fear is about the utilization of this for the, the, the Scientocracy. That, that, that's what my, my great concern is. And it's also about the connection between globalization and uh, the evolution of what the scientists have called, H.G. Uh, Wells has called the New World Order, not anything strange in any other uh, dimension. Uh, what people failed to realize, and, and some of the advocates are beginning to come out openly again because they're, not, they're feeling confident now, they can just put it in your face, that really globalization was not a strategy, it was a tactic. Globalization was a tactic which will be seen to be temporary to get to a situation where the conditions for the movement to the next phase would be. So the strategy was global scientific control, in my belief, so that's what the, what the phase is. So the idea that you could travel around everywhere, you're going to get all these benefits of technology and mass communications, that was a, uh, a tactic. Uh, and this centralization process now creates ideal situation for the unification of communism and capitalism in an overarching empire of scientism. Because you notice that the left has disappeared. I mean, the left used to be in favor, in this part of the world anyway, in favor of trade unions, in favor of the working class, in favor of the rights of people against war. That's all disappeared. Uh, they're gone. Even the Marxists are noticing that there's something strange about that. And then when you look at, say, the Trotskyists, for example, we have to bear in mind that there was a lot of ex-Trotskyists that appeared in the neoliberal camp. The point being that... Uh, it's a materialist paradigm. It doesn't matter whether you're on the one extreme or the other. They want the same thing. Trotsky was in favor of this transhumanist idea. He, he believed that the individual was going to evolve scientifically. And when I was looking, when I was investigating the, uh, the Tunnies and, and the, the various people of that name or whatever that came over, there's not loads of them, so you usually find relationships. So, there, so you often find it. In boxing or in boxing, there's a number of politics and whatever. But there's also the first, the head of the first 
um, kind of home homeland security, if you like, example in the United States was a fellow called Thomas Tunney, the inspector in New York, this book called The Dark Invasion. And they were they were then fighting against uh, Germans who were who were bombing ships in New York, etc. And so there was a, a, a Secret Service were operating at the time of the First World War. Uh, and at the end of the, the book, he's talking about when Trotsky, because uh, they were following all the people that were going around, so they, they were following Trotsky as well. And Trotsky and his 200 people from the United States were going from the center of finance in America back to take control and, and, and the Bolshevik re- revolution. The idea that the left and the right and the people that make the differences are, are, are separate is a nonsense. It's, it's about the domination of a materialist paradigm. And if people believe that one or the other are going to lead them to freedom, they're wrong. In both cases, whether it be through the military-industrial complex and the neo, neo, neoliberalist uh, approach, and we've seen the devastation of that, but we've seen the devastation of Stalinism and we've seen uh, of the Soviet Union and the, the permutations of that when Cambodia and Pol Pot and, 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 uh, and China. So if people haven't read their history and they believe that they're going to get some paradise in the future by having or reverting from one to the other, well, uh, they'll be sorely mistaken uh, unless they believe that they'll be in the elect group of the technocracy which will control those things. And all the major models, if you look at Brzezinski and his technotronic society, they, they all point to the same thing. Scientocracy, technocracy, technopoly is another uh, word that Postman used to, uh, to describe it, all point to the same thing. The idea that there's a universal control by a group of uh, scientists and people that believe in science and, and technocrats necessary to support that, that will operate a system probably in accordance with the, the technocracy idea based on the management of energy, energy systems, which is why they're so interested in electrical systems and control on that, uh, and that uh, everything will be geared. And also, we have this idea that the environment is going to be protected and solved by technocrats, people that have no love of nature whose history, whose very discipline is about torturing nature to squeeze out. The that's the, that's, that's it. I was going to say, anyone that thinks technocrats and scientists are going to protect nature, all they've got to do is do a 180 and look behind them and see what's happened since the scientific revolution. It's been the absolute destruction of nature in the name of science. I mean, you don't even need two brain cells holding hands to see that. Yes, uh, uh, people people believe that these people uh, f- uh, are, are going to solve it. It's like Monte Carlo, late at night, the scientists have bet all along. They say, oh, let's have one big glass throw of the dice, you know, and if it doesn't work, we have our spaceships to take us off to Mars and terraforming it. Yeah, I, I, it's unbelievable. But here's here's a thought that came to me while you were talking about the globalization thing. If the globalization things actually really to make the world a better place and to smooth things out, then globalization would come hand in hand with demilitarization. 
Because if you truly have a one world government, you don't have any nationalism anymore. Therefore, you don't need to spend trillions of dollars on a military and all that money could actually be used to rehabilitate nature. But I've seen zero indication that that's going on. But the, it's, it's funny because coming from Ireland, uh, nationalism became an accept, it was an acceptable word to describe the patriotism and the respect for the culture and all that. So in recent years, that has changed to refer to something sinister because it doesn't fit in the agenda. If you look at a lot of the wars, they're created by empires. Uh, and yes. Hitler was wanting to establish an empire, whether you call it, yes. you know, he started as socialist or fascist, well, well it doesn't matter. Uh, he, he wanted to create the, tur- the Third Reich. He wanted an empire that would last for a, a, a thousand years or, or, or more. Uh, and the Brit- he was fighting against the British Empire. Uh, and then we have the American empire, and China has always been an empire, so it just changes its forms. So empire, the problem with empires is, although they're created in different forms, they're like energy. They never uh, disappear. They just change from one form to another. And as these empires began to see that the world was changing, that they were have national liberation struggles, which were fighting against empires, the it went to a different level. It went to control of finance, resources, and ultimately, and I think I think the term was used by Churchill, that the next empire would be the empire of the mind. I'm sure he used yes, that Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, so, he did. So he was, he was telling uh, what was going to happen. So the, the endeavor of psychology is to uh, a lot of it, and anthropology, people forget that a lot of anthropologists are employed by the state to find out how to work better with the the, the local people. That's what their job was. You find out what their language is, and then we'll be able to... It was the same as the Jesuits developed these principles as well, to know the local community better than the, the, so they could integrate it and infiltrate. So uh, this, this imperial, uh, imperial mode, uh, which existed uh, in Russia as well, now can accommodate it in under the rubric of scientism, the idea that it's scientific and utilizing technology in the ultimate empire, whereby they can they can have people of a similar interest, the people that are fascinated with control, that believe we're only living in a, living in a material universe, that believe that spiritual people are, are superstitious. They can all fit into the equa- equation. They can all have the best access to medical technology to pr- 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 promote their life because they're afraid of death, because they want some kind of immortality, because they don't have any spiritual sense. And they can all be united across borders when they don't have to worry about any opposition internally or they don't have to struggle because the technology will do it with the AI and with with transhumanism. Yeah. We're in a very, very interesting time. You know, Jung said no man is fully alive until he has the power to destroy himself. So in one way, we should all be dancing in the street with our vitality you know that's one thing about a legitimate shamanic journey you know it takes you into a death experience and it can be shocking to the very core of you and you can have experiences that are so vital so vivid and so intense that it makes the normal ordinary waking state seem like you're asleep comparatively and my point is when you're in one of these experiences for which i have a lot of experience you are very, very alive and you feel yourself walking the edge of your own destruction 
if you're doing a, a, a deep journey, you know, I, I'm a, a, an explorer. So I take the, uh, as my own research, I take the doses up until I hit psychosis so I can actually map out the territory and, and know how to help people as a medicine man uh, when they come to me with psychological imbalances and, and distortions and disruptions from playing around with these medicines and not knowing what they're doing and getting misled and mixing them with different drugs and doing them too often. So it, that's how I pioneer everything. I, I work it and test it to the edges of itself. And then I make a record of it all and say, okay, now I can see where you're at, or I can see how this could be used therapeutically or how it could be damaging as opposed to therapeutic. But it's, the, the this thing that's happening though is we have the power to destroy ourselves yet we're the opposite of fully alive because people are so heavily drugged and so distracted and so confused and so manipulated i actually think people have really lost touch with what it means to be alive and when you think about what we discussed earlier with the concept of the self I don't think you can really have a visceral sense of what it means to be alive if you're disconnected from nature because nature is our only real reference for what life really is. If you took a human being and raised them in a laboratory completely separate from nature, they would not have a sense of what it really means to be alive outside of a, a glass environment with white counters. So there would be no sense of connection to anything other than sterile objects, which wouldn't be anything we would call life. So I really feel that we're, we're actually so far away from the day of Carl Jung that we now really don't know what it means to be fully alive, even though we have the power to destroy ourselves. But in the same time, when you have this paradox, it also signals a very dangerous situation because it means that you're unconscious of the effects of what you're doing to nature to create this techno industrial scientific materialist sterile reality that's really based on the flow of data nothing actually factual nothing tangible well th there there's a funny point that people should remember about Huxley was that Huxley said himself that he couldn't have really spiritual experience. He's tried to, although he studied the perennial philosophy, he he found it difficult. He didn't have hypnagogic experiences. He didn't have visualization. So when he took his uh, mescaline, it opened, well, the doors of perception that he didn't have. And this yeah. is important to remember because, of course, uh, Thomas H. Huxley, his grandfather, was the one who led the uh, movement against spiritualism because spiritualism was grown <laughs> up in particular in the 1870s and the word the idea of psychic forces uh it came from a, a letter from uh, edward or sergeant cox in 1871 to crooks and he said well i think we should describe these forces as psychic forces uh, and people who engage in them as as psych as engaged in psychism and this and the field should be called psychology and uh -huh. uh, sergeant cox in 1875 established a, a psychological society it didn't last only it was, it was there when he was alive but it was very very clear that the idea of psychic was used because the scientists wouldn't buy the idea of the spirit 
they wanted to bury the idea of the spirit. So spiritualism was seen to be associated with, uh, with uh, spirituality. So it, it wasn't even that they were, they were against what they called spiritualism. Because if you look uh, at books written in uh, 1863, uh, A History of the Supernatural, for example, by Hewitt, he uses, he uses spiritualism to refer to the whole supernatural. Now, Huxley set up a, uh, or was part of a club called the X Club, and their job, a number of scientists, was to defeat this growth of spiritualism. So they infiltrated the royal societies and took control so that they could they could take out the idea of the spirit. So the consequences of the reformations, enlightenment, uh, bringing to a head with this imperial scientism was to kill the spirit as well. And also at that stage, the anthropologists were getting associated, were, were going out in the empire and bringing things back. The British Museum was bringing things back as well. And, and the British Museum was around, was where Sergeant Cox, he, he lived beside it. There was a lot of activity in Russell Square around there where Bernal comes to live, where Karl Marx comes to study in the British Museum and all that. And also, uh, yeah. scientists are now admitting that Huxley, as an anatomist, they, they create a hierarchy uh, and say, well, here's this race and the white race. They created scientific racism and taught the public about it. So the public weren't racist uh, in the way that we understand it until the scientists came and said, look, there's a scientific theory that explains that here's this group and here's the other groups below, it, including the Irish, who people forget mm -hmm. were described as white chimpanzees. You know, so people forget about this. I never knew that, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, but I mean, so, so the, the, the use of that was associated with the idea of evolution. So the, the Irish came out uh, bad in that. And if there's letters to Darwin from his friend using that term. So, uh, so, so as well as that, it's a bit ironic now that the, all of a sudden that, uh, that's turned against a colonial people or a people that were, you know, historically they had a colony from 1169 and they're somehow become the oppressors. This is the genius of the system that it can divide people and it can turn people against. So whereas I talked to the, to the, my father's uncle, who was in the jail and fighting and on the run and hiding under barns and hiding in holes in the ground and shooting out to shoot and defend against the, you know, the guys that were released from prison and sent over and put in uniform. They may do that again in the future. It's a handy idea. Get the guys they have in the jail and say, okay, do what we say and you can work for us. That's an idea that empires have used uh, before. So these guys uh, with very limited resources believed that they were fighting against an empire they weren't fighting against the english they weren't fighting against uh, ordinary people they certainly weren't fighting against uh, protestants because uh, this is the thing that's projected on afterwards the colonial struggle happened began in 1169 before there was any protestant uh, there was no reformation there was no protestant so that the, the, the this is another thing they do a religion they they're, they're, they're utilized which is not consistent with the statistics the idea that religion is the cause of all wars. And the reason why that is happening now, although if you look at the statistics, it's not. If you look back at the amount of people that were lost in China over hundreds and hundreds of years, the volume of people going back for a long time, it wasn't about, wasn't about religion. Of course, in the 20th century, they want to hide the fact that a lot of the great loss of life was from doctrines which were described as scientific socialism. They forget that. That's what communism was at a certain stage, what's the term that Stalin uses. 
And this, these doctrines that deny the individuality, that deny specialness of humanity, were, were behind one of the, the bloodiest centuries, mass killing without, uh, without compassion and compunction. And somehow people believe that those doctrines which are being spread again as uh, on both sides, you know, in a kind of combined ac action, are in some way going to be benign in their next uh, in, in their next manifestation, or won't interact with this ideology of scientism because that's what scientism is. It's an ideology, and it's fundamentalist. And you can see it when you go back to if you look at the way, for example, Darwinianism has been presented. Uh, or Darwinitis, as, as Richard Raymond Tallis describes her, or biologism. Better term. <laughs> yeah. Or, or biologism, and the idea that everything can be reduced in that form, and then it's presented as a fundamentalist doctrine and used to knock down straw men that they, they find in some uh, back of nowhere in, in America who are not familiar with discursive techniques that they use to present, who are not familiar with their own theology. Uh, and, and they've been very successful in indoctrinating the generation of younger people. This is the only way to see the world, and it's the exclusive way to see the world. And uh, well, there's yeah, there's an old saying in Christianity that the ministers use: "You give me a child, and I'll give you a priest," hmm. which means I'll take your child and brainwash them, and they'll be forever indoctrinated, and you can use them as a weapon however you want. And, you know, I appreciate your point about the concept of religion being the cause of all or the most biggest cause of wars. But I would like to take a different angle on that and say, you can say that whatever a person's belief system is their religion. So scientism is a religion. In other words, whatever your, whatever your indoctrination is, that's what you're going to defend. And all wars have opposing viewpoints behind them. So there is an indoctrination, therefore, a religion in a broader context, as opposed to not spiritual, but religion, i.e., I'm willing to fight and die over this mm. belief system. Well, I, I, for me, the better word is ideology, because I, yes, I, believe, of course. Ide I believe when you say ideology, for me, the, uh, the opposing uh, in the duality is pragmatism of the William James type. And pragmatism right. sets out and says, okay, let's look at the consequences of this belief. And it does so in a cosmopolitan way that doesn't exclude any, any predetermined outcome. So it says, okay, if we do this, well, what is the consequence of that belief? That was why William James, informed by a Swedenborgian background, could accept mystical experience because he hadn't foreclosed his mind to it. And he took a broader view consistent with Swedenborgian path as opposed to mm -hmm. other more reductionist paths. So uh, my fear about this, when they, when they say about religion causing all wars, is that they are, there's a priming for the future. Because what would be the best? Mm -hmm. What would be the best thing to have the final apotheosis of the empire of scientism would be to have a religious war. Now, Christianity is dying in Europe. They've been very, very successful. It really is in a lot weaker position than people think. Uh, I think the Catholic Church is under, under great pressure as well. Uh, Judaism was attacked because it was the religion that they could attack uh, by the Nazis could, could attack. It was, it was one of the Abrahamic religions that they could attack. 
Christianity was going to follow. And we have Gramsci in the 20s in the prison diaries saying that we can't have communism until we get rid of Catholicism because he understood that the peasant with their belief in God wouldn't take any material promises on this earth over that belief. And therefore, they had to yes. attack uh, Catholicism. So that had to be. But then you're left uh, with Islam. And according to what I read in relation to the scientists that put forward the views, they may tolerate Islam only until they come to a, a position where they can destroy it. And if they wanted to destroy it, well, it would seem to be the possibility one must consider is to create tensions between whatever remnants is left. So, so my fear is that we can uh, any empire has to proceed by dividing people. There was never a withdrawal of an empire that didn't leave a civil war. And you say, well, is that just an accident? Look at all the national liberation struggles. You have a war of independence against an empire, and then you have the civil war. It's inevitable because it's part of it. They're not going to leave that place without leaving the, uh, the roots there. So my fear is that the these religious tensions can be artificially stoked up. So that's why when I'm arguing for spirituality, I, according with the perennial philosophy, I want to encourage people who are uh, genuine spiritual seekers in their tradition to see their common interest. And I don't want to alienate them against, you know, in the process. Because uh, in it, in all the religions, there are there are practitioners that are very serious and very spiritual, despite whatever limitations on them. So yeah. I want to emphasize the common uh, possibilities of enlightened people uh, and uh, to, to 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 create bridges, so one doesn't exclude the possibilities that they can uh, operate at a higher level. Because if there is, if anyone believes in a god. There has to be the, the same God. There's not. Uh, there's not going to be. It's going to be the one God that that if they believe in that theocratic, and there may be different paths to it. So uh, the perennial philosophy for me emphasizes that there may be different paths to it. If we if we we go above whatever religious background we have to to focus on the key elements, focusing on issues that are common, like light, for example, is in, in, in all religion, and to begin to develop theologies that are. That facilitate. Well, I, I don't want to to cut out, and also to avoid the possibilities by by an empire that will want to uh, eradicate any any uh, spiritual belief. I, 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 that's a fear that I have for the the future. That I want another reason why I want to emphasize the perennial philosophy, including the native religions of Africa as ones that deserve respect, and and including the native religions of of, of America. That. Yes. respect for all the theologies and to integrate and, and when you're talking about well, there's another point that came to mind when you're talking about experiences and, and the, uh, the the medicines is going back to Shakespeare uh, that a coward dies a thousand times and, and the valiant die but once and that's an important point because if a person is living in their spiritual fullness they're not going to fear death but if you're, if you're watching if you've given up your sovereignty to the state and where every knock on the door, ring on the bell, letter, email, whatever, can, can, can cause you fear because you've given up power, well, then it will be a, a nightmare. Um, but also, uh, I, I, I've, I've listened to you talking about um, use of herbal medicines, and I, I, 
that is the way to if you look back at the the in particular mescaline people say oh the psychedelic era started with uh with with huxley and that but of course he was taking mescaline we go back to 1891 uh quana parker and james mooney uh, the irish ethnographer and where they had uh the ceremony that mooney took play, part in and quana parker says to him take these uh, this peyote back to Washington and explain to them this is our religion, which he did do. And he went back and he distributed that to scientists, including William James, uh, who didn't like it, but it was uh, it eventually gets to Germany, which and they, they isolated the mescaline in, in, uh, in 1897. Uh, but of course, that was part uh, of their religion and, uh, and it is part of the Native American church. And also... The association between the native peoples and their sacred plants is an important link, and it's it, it's good that people like yourself and your sh shamanic studies establish those connections with the true sources, which is not the big corporatist sources, and which understands the limitations and the benefits and the context and the proper procedures, and the distinction between that exploration. Uh, and taking a tab somewhere in, 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 a, in a bar somewhere which people uh, engage, engage in. That's just dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is that also in this context is the archetypes within yourself. And it's clear in your, your life that Explorer is certainly the, uh, one of the archetypes that come to the fore. The healer is, is the other one that's very, very strong. Uh, the warrior is the the the, the other one, uh, and the other one that uh, I would identify with is is the Merlin complex, the the idea of the magician who can through their exploration assist other people. Uh, the, the, going mm -hmm. back to Merlin and the artist saga and that, and 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 other arch archetypes, but uh, we have to draw on those archetypes within us. We have to find them. And we have to model ourselves as well. We don't find them strong enough, but they are in us, in, 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 not just in a Jungian sense, but in a, in a broader mythological sense to, to utilize, to look back at par past struggles and to interpret them in, in, in contemporary context. Yeah, I, I tell people, I believe archetypes are the root language of consciousness. If Without archetypes you really have no way to interface with consciousness because everything that we say in language points to some kind of an activity that can be classified as mother father child warrior king queen empress uh the archetype of law you know the the you know the archetypes are the great shall we say um that's the only way you can take God consciousness and put it into some semblance of meaning. Because having had many, many states of complete union, there is no consciousness of, not even of yourself. You're, you're beyond self. You're, you're in a state of complete and utter, um, the only word is unadulterated awareness. You become the light itself. So without an archetype, there is no way for God to experience itself and there's nothing to be conscious of. And clearly whatever God is, is interested in exploring its own potentials or the universe and sentient life wouldn't have any function. 
Um, thinking about in relation to the evolution of the the new mythic or a mythic for our times or or the the reestablishment or restoration of an ancient mythic or the drawing on the archetypes in a contemporary context. Um, my uh, perhaps I'll just lay out my belief about uh, what the counter the counter force is to this to to, to this. I don't want people to be <laughs> say, "Oh my goodness, all this is happening. Let's throw in the towel. Give it up. Give us the give us that." <laughs> so so uh, my message and your message as well is a very positive one, and 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 the pressure is the very pressure uh, occasion and cause of the movement towards a new stage of spiritual evolution. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the pressure that produces greatness. That's yeah. what Going it back is. back to your original uh, coal and diamond. So I agree with this. Yeah. So there's, a, there's a couple of ideas that uh, are, are certainly knocking around in my head at the, uh, at the moment or in relation to the strategies for, for, for this. That What I see is uh, we certainly have the idea coming from Myers who was another person knocking around that Russell Square British Museum uh, area. But Frederick Myers was the one that originally came up with the concept of the imaginal and before Corban. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea of the imaginal in its contemporary sense, uh, as a number of people have identified, Bruce Lipton and others, is that the, the cells within the chrysalis of the old form begin to resonate individually. And through their individual resonation the imaginal cells become the the butterfly they, they become the new form that emerges with the same dna as far as i understand from the original force so for me the imaginal in that sense also in the core band sense of the the mundus imaginalis that visual world of the mystic uh, this comes about and the change comes from individual individuals who resonate from their own journey. And that's also that notion of resonation that you've talked about in the heart, in the massage context, which is consistent with my idea of accord. So it's because of individuals who have gone on their own journey, on their own path, and gone to a high level, that when they get to that stage, and this another idea I would add to this, is the congregation of light from Eckhart Housen, the cloud upon the sanctuary. He talked about the mystic congregation. He said, and he was talking in Christian terms, but it's not confined to Christian terms, and even if it was, it's still relevant, that the people who are evolved uh, come to a stage where they recognize other mystics. They can see. They don't have to tell. They don't have to communicate. They can recognize that the other person has gone on a similar journey. And I can do it in a second. Yeah. So, 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 so this is the benefit of that is that no organization is going to work in a context where organizations can be captured. No network is going to work in a context where there's formality. So the benefit of this imaginal system, of the idea of a congregation of light who is defined by the individual having passed on their own path through self-initiation, through self-propulsion to a certain point where they have those range of powers, not just mystic powers, spiritual powers, but also psychological and real-world powers. Because as we know from looking at Maslow, that the people who have had peak experiences are, are, are the most high-performing people. But it's not as if yes. they're not lotus eaters. They're not the ones no. 
that take the lotus and flake out that Odysseus has to drag off the island because they have succumbed. No, they're they're yeah. not they're not Timothy Leary's people. No, that 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 that's that's very important. So as they're Ram Dass's people, <laughs> as Evelyn Underhill said and makes it very very clear, the mystic is defined by the fact that they bring something back to the community, and this is consistent yes. with Joseph Campbell's idea that. You go on the hero's journey and you bring it back. Now, they may not take it, but you have to bring back the, uh, the boon to the community. So that idea of the imaginal, the congregation of light are pointing in the same direction. And the other idea that has been in my mind quite recently is the idea of the murmuration, the idea of the way starlings congregate and they congregate in a flock, the murmuration. Yes. So they move in a way and they can, they can move in different shapes. Uh, they obviously can't be led by one by one bird. They move for particular reasons. It's the same with certain fish. They move because when they're dealing with certain predators. Now, you talked about predation early on. The, the problem with humans is having been the apex predators, they have to cannibalize themselves and turn on themselves because those ancient, ancient predatory uh, predation uh, possibilities instincts. are there. Instincts are there and, and they turn on themselves. It's a kind of... Uh, it, it's a kind of corruption of the original growth thing in, in, in a kind of cancerous way. But the, the, the murmuration, apparently, according to scientists, not that I, but, but they say that every one starling can operate on seven around it and that, that one will have a little signal, little whatever, and it will influence the other. So they can move in all these permutations. Now, the word murmur, of course, is... is a, the sound of people talking and communicating. A murmur is, is a positive sound of people actually communicating to each other. But in Swedish, the word murmur is mother's mother. It's the grandmother. And the grandmother oh. is a critical figure in this. The grandmother in traditional societies has an important role in relation to keeping wisdom. And uh, there's been older women, they're not grandmothers, they wouldn't like, they wouldn't like to be described as grandmothers, but, but, but sometimes they are, who have helped me, for example. And it's not always clear, uh, it's not always clear that they would be the ones, but I have a pattern I can identify of that because it's the same as the people have been on spiritual journeys when a person has been unselfish, unselfish not in one generation, but in two generations, and they're not interested in egotistical things. They often have the space to be able to see what's important and also have the concerns and also have the the courage and the other word courage from heart. So I, I, I think that the idea of a, a mystic murmuration is in my head, the idea of individuals who have reached a certain level, who are not affiliated in any way, who can't be controlled and can't be put down, but can influence in, in, in particular ways or corroborate or reinforce or assist or contribute, or create a discourse, or spread the discourse, or spread a network, will be the thing that can unleash the power. The power is in spiritual consciousness. Every individual that, is, that listens to us has that greatest consciousness, and, and that's all they have to do is to realize all the great traditions say you have that kingdom within you. In Advaita Vedanta, it's you look at yourself, you look at that consciousness, you realize that you're the one who's looking. So when they do that, yes. they, they understand that they have that consciousness, which is of fundamental nature in the universe. Brahman is Atman, and Atman is Brahman. Yeah. 
And once that realization is there, then when they, because it's important for people to counter the nonsense that's being presented to them, when they say, you don't exist, humanness is not special, uh, humanness can be deconstructed, you don't have any rights, you don't, because you're just information, you're just an algorithm, you're not a person, that doesn't mean anything special. People have to combat that. They have to combat that, and you can only combat that with a a belief which is rooted in those spiritual traditions which are reinforced consistently over over millennia that are our, our cultural and spiritual heritage, our foundation. And that's why the the message is a, is a hopeful one, that, that the possibilities are there. And once people come out, the, again, in the biblical context, which you know very well, come out from among them, that idea... Uh, come, or come out ye from among them, the idea that you have to bring yourself out of a, a morass of a background where you're not exercising your individuality, where you're not showing the efflorescence of your spiritual sovereignty. Uh, once a person does and they realize their power, they're not prepared to accept the, the, the nonsense. And we're going to get an awful lot of nonsense. And we're going to get an awful lot of nonsense because we've succumbed and given up and perhaps it will take the fact that uh, it wouldn't be surprising if sometime in March or, or, or a couple of weeks in March or April that we have a financial collapse because that would be an ideal forerunner for any international uh, convention to, to come up with a new, say, if it doesn't come now, it'll come in the future, a digital currency. You get your, you get your yep. universal income like a computer game and you spend it at the government store. You stay at home, you, you shut up, and you be thankful for what what you get from this, the scientists. Or facilitated with with breakdowns, with power losses beforehand, so people are dying to get, or or a shortage of food, which people have seemed to ignore the danger of that. When you break you break down supply chains, the danger of uh, foods food shortages, whatever. So so those things. Will will not be a surprise uh, in the future. Of course, we're going or in the short term future. If, if they happen, they will facilitate the projection of the need for uh, global management. Uh, and uh, we can see already there's volatility. We can see people, people who some people who believe that Bitcoin is a solution. A lot of money going into Bitcoin, but the government could also pull the plug on that in a stroke of a pen. Bitcoin is illegal, just just like that. There's nothing. There's nothing. Stopping that, it might they might be right, but we don't know. The point is, same with the stock sh- the stock market. It's easy for people to play games on that to make it look like it's it's not going to work. And governments won't be able to pay back the money. The tax base is, is disappearing. So the pressure for an international solution, which is facilitated by, uh, say, the Chinese or whatever, with a Chinese currency backed by rare earths or whatever. Something that they, they they control is very very likely as well. It may take something like that until people realise that uh, they have given their power to the system, and at that stage, the acceleration of control with technology will become manifest. We haven't seen all the drones that that have been made or robots or whatever. I think we will be seeing them uh, shortly. Yeah, you know, a couple of thoughts that came to me that I'll share is. When you were describing how they're likely to approach us and tell us that we're nothing special and 
the kind of stamp out spirituality concept, it reminds me of Jung's response to uh, the atheist. He said something must be real before it can be rejected. So the very fact that they will try to tell us that we're nothing special means that we are. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be there or they can't reject it. And the other thing is Rumi said, he said, um, you cannot get to God until you become a heretic. And I think that that's a very important thing for us to understand because to be a heretic means to go against the dogma. It means to have your own beliefs and your own internal experiences and to let that guide you regardless of what other people's viewpoints are. If you have a mystical experience, it's your own. Whether somebody believes it's true or not is completely their issue. And it's usually because your mystical experience does not interface with their belief system or their dogma. What Rumi was really saying is you'll never become enlightened reading books. You have to actually engage life deeply enough to realize what's behind it. And that's when you actually find God. And so I think that we're actually in a strange way we're actually entering into a pressure cooker. And the result of that is those that are already moving toward their own spiritual evolution and have made it far enough to know that turning back isn't something that they can do because it would be to just completely and utterly lie to their own experience are going to actually um, be like bread that rises instead of instead of the heat killing them, they're going to rise up and become their full selves. And I think my vision for that and what inspires me, and it's why I'm building an entirely new system to support people, which is what I'm working on the book right now, which will come with a workbook. And there'll be an online membership program, which will be run like a, a temple or a church, but it, it isn't going to be a temple or a church. It's going to be a place where I help people and I choose people like yourself that are awake enough to really serve as guides to help people by answering questions and supporting them with a wide variety of spiritual development techniques. Because I really feel that at this time, people are getting scared and they need to have a place to go where they can learn the tools for managing a mind and learning to think effectively and learning how to identify what their dream is for their life, or at least for this immediate stage of their life, and how to use the principles of real magic, not sleight of hand, but the magic of using your mind and having your mind and heart synchronized so that there is coherence within you and your capacity to manifest reaches its potential. And you have people around you that are effective manifestors to support your own evolution and growth. So Part of my sense of hope is that I know that there's plenty of people out there that are in the oven of of the spiritual of, of you know the alchemists call it cooking, right? Hmm. So I think there's a lot of people that are through the blackening phase and into the yellow phase, and that and I think the heat of this is going to push them right to the white phase. And I don't think it's going to take too many of those people working together to create a level of awareness amongst the public that would be 
almost like the power of the return of a Jesus again. The when I look back at the uh, the history of the Irish struggle, uh, what you have different you have you have, a, you have an oscillation between a constitutional non-violent uh, struggle and the armed struggle. Now, at certain stages, when the army are overrunning your house and whatever like that, and, and whatever if there's a tyranny who are using armed forces, people are going to react to the legitimate right of self-defense, as even in defined in, in national, in national yeah. law. So those things are behind. So uh, Daniel O'Connell was the great non-violent uh, inspiration in, in Ireland. So, uh, of course, we uh, the solutions will be uh, through use of moral force and, and uh, non-violent forces. But the uh, I, I was thinking about in the historical context, one of the when, when my father's uncle, one of them, and this this chap just died before I was born, so I didn't meet him. I met the other guys, uh, but he was in in a uh, famous prison in in Wales in Frangoch, and he shared a uh, his dorm with a, a fellow called Terence Mac, Mac Sweeney or McSweeney, and he was a poet and a playwright and. Um, a politician, and he was involved in, in in the struggle. He was elected Lord Mayor of Cork, and he went on on hunger strike when he was in prison uh, in London. He went on a seventy four day hunger strike, um, and uh, it, it became a cause celebre around the world. It influenced people like Gandhi, uh, and Ho Chi Minh, uh, and others. Uh, and the point I make about that is, he believed he was struggling against empire. Um, now, as I said, the times are different. I'm not talking about nationalist struggles i'm not talking about violent struggles i'm talking about the the power of people when they are marshaled or when they choose that their spiritual freedom and liberty is more important than life itself and if you can imagine the fortitude necessary to endure 74 days where your body is eating itself uh uh to uh, it's 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 a huge powerful symbol of self-sacrifice now i'm not recommending that today but what i'm saying is that we have moral courage and moral fortitude which when it manifests itself as gandhi did as a great example when he was thrown off the train in south africa and he begins to say well what am i what am i going to do what what does this mean and he begins to marshal his moral force Going back to principles of ahimsa, non-violence, looking at the Hindu tradition, uh, using that and, and manifesting itself in a real-world context, it becomes an irresistible force that empires, arms, weapons uh, are, are, can't be used against. So none of those things happen, in, in, in take the Gandhi case, without that realization that the moral force has to manifest itself and it has to manifest itself against something which is immoral and something which is not life affirming so uh, there are all kinds of examples in human history which uh, suggests and impel us to reinterpret in a different way in a non-violent uh, inspirational spirit enhancing uh, spirit evolving way as a counterweight, as a counterpath to uh, technocracy, scientocracy, techniques of control, techniques that are, have said that humanity will be gone in a generation, that 
so we're talking about this spirit of humanity, not even about our own individual spirits. They have said that humans are finished, that humans are algorithms, that humans will be controlled by the exponential growth of technology, which is what we're artificial intelligence, and we have no choice. We do have a choice, but we won't have a choice if we don't assert ourselves. We don't assert ourselves, cooperate, communicate, uh, be courageous to stand up and to challenge concepts, like in the example you were using, where you say in your life, your daily life, well, that's wrong. I don't accept that. Not accepting authority, having the having the the balls, whether you're a man or a woman, to stand up against the uh, the forces which want to utilize authority for all the people that love systems, for all the people that will love having control over your life, and that control will only will only get greater and greater if if individuals don't wake up to the thing. So I support any anything you do. I, I believe that what you're going to do in the future, my instinct is that you're going to extrapolate from your your very successful systematizing, modeling and mapping and your very thorough ability to look at detail and master detail and translate that into systems that operate and are available to people, that you're going to take that model that you have so successfully utilized on that corporate, cor uh, corporal level, and you're going to apply it and craft it at a higher level for people that will be consistent with the perennial philosophy and that will make some of the ideas that other, other of us make complex into simple ways that people can understand. And also, because what's important in, in your pragmatic approach is you demonstrate results. So if you can take that and show from the spiritual, mystical path about how it works in a real-world context, uh, that will be a great contribution, and I think you will do that. That's exactly what I'm doing, to the T. And I've been working on it my whole life. This, yeah. you know, Often people say, well, I've been researching for 10 years to write this book. My research began the day I was born, and I have hundreds, I mean literally hundreds of notebooks of all my studies. And, uh, you know, here I am now just under 60 years of age, and I feel like now I have the depth and the breadth of knowledge on the whole experience of being a human being and, and what it means to be alive and a participant in nature and the evolution of consciousness to actually have tested it in my life consistently and not been afraid to try things that other people deny or are afraid of, whether that be having two wives or the use of plant medicines or extreme exercise or motocross racing, kickboxing, being a paratrooper in the military. I've looked the devil in the eyes a lot of times, but I've also looked deep enough into the devil to find God standing there. So I, I feel that uh, right now, that's the pressure I have. You know, when you study the history of Zarathustra, he talks about how he had this point in his own development where the knowledge in him was so heavy he said if he didn't come down the mountain and share it his limbs were going to break you have to make yourself light yeah i i've got to get this out of me because it feels like if i don't share this with people my life will have 
been incomplete and I won't have finished what I came here to do. And I also want to make sure that I leave this not only for my children, but for the children in the world, because it's really a lot of it is really what is a mind and how do minds work? And what can you create when you use your mind effectively and you couple it with the cosmic consciousness or the one mind? And I think right now people are so lost and confused because there's so much confusion as to what's true, whether it be religious truth or whether it be natural truth or whether it be scientific truth. It's, it's as though everything's pitted against everything else. And the, you know, Steiner talks about the emergence of the awareness soul. First, we have a mineral soul, then we have a biological soul, then we have an intellectual soul. But Steiner says, when you reach the point in your life where you begin genuinely questioning your own thoughts, beliefs, and the ideas around you, that's the emergence of the awareness soul. The awareness soul gives birth to the creative soul, which gives birth to the intuitive soul, which then gives birth to the union of consciousness with self and you become one with God or you have a true enlightenment experience. And so I really feel that what's important for me to do is to give people the tools to allow their awareness soul to actually take birth. Because once your awareness soul takes birth, you no longer fall into the trap of just believing things. You look at them relative to is it sustainable? Has it worked for anybody? Is it something I can incorporate into my life? What's the short-term and long-term consequences? Who else has already tried this and what was their results? And so it allows a person to actually think holistically and not delude themselves by just becoming a believer and to look at how does history show us what is transmutable into the future and how can I actually live in a way that exemplifies to others freedom and morality and integration into nature with the intention of betterment for all and for supporting life on the planet because without the great chain of being our existence is gone and so the the one thing that I think the technocrats have overlooked is if they keep destroying nature, they themselves are going to die. So their technocracy is going to be a failed experiment. But they think they'll be on Mars by then, so they're not concerned about that. But uh, to some extent, but and also uh, when I started coming back to look at what was what was written when I when I was going through mystical stuff and said, okay, well, what what do the best minds say? And then you look back again and you realize they have nothing. They come to the table with nothing. They don't understand consciousness. They have no idea what consciousness is. Some of the greatest neurologists in the world say consciousness is what happens uh, when you're awake and as if it disappears when you're asleep. Yeah. It, it is incredible. So they have the hard problem of consciousness. So they either decide like Dennett that it doesn't exist uh, or they just park it and say, well, well it's, it's something else. Uh, at the same time, whereas the greatest minds like Planck uh, that said that uh, consciousness is fundamental in, uh, in the universe yes. and all the observer things re require the observer. So these guys have come along and taken out the observer, believe that 
they are not looking at all these experiments, believe that all these experiments are objective and, and they ignore the sub subjective uh, element in it. And I mean, the, so people have to challenge the nonsense that they're portraying and they, they have to make sure they're not mystified by this mathematics that's being employed, the idea, especially with computers, the authority of the machine, the authority of a graph, the authority and, and, and the, the mumbo jumbo of all the techniques. Uh, they believe that that nonsense that, that is shown. And uh, Steinbeck said that all of the great developments come from the lonely mind of man, or the, the lonely mind of woman, that, that, that personal struggle. So uh, what, when I started studying your broader work, when I was looking at what you were saying and the spiritual journey, I could see that, uh, that truth, and that's the only word for it. You don't do that. You don't go on that journey unless you're motivated by the desire for truth. That's the only thing that interests me. Yeah, you don't, you don't persist with that. You don't read all the stuff. You don't pay attention to it. You don't, pay, you don't go back and look. You don't restudy it. You don't uh, study the different versions of the Bible un unless you're, 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 you're really interested in it. And uh, I think when you have explored, as you have done, the different manifestations of yourself, and when you have looked in different contexts and explored from fission to you know, to, to your interest in mechanics or the body, all the the whole range, the whole spectrum, where you have acquired skills and you're you're an eager student because the the mystics are all, always have a, a great curiosity. Uh, they will persist with their journey, and I, I, I think of certain artists. I've I've bumped into Frank Auerbach three times, who's still alive, who's who's about ninety, uh, who was born in Berlin, whose whose parents sent him on the kindergarten over to Britain whose parents died in Auschwitz, uh, and he, he, he be, he's become a great painter. He paints, I think he used to take off two days a year, one to go to Bristol or somewhere with his friends, and maybe Christmas Day. And every other day, he goes to his studio and paints. And I believe he's still painting. Uh, and when I talked to him, and it was a great, a great privilege to bump into him uh, when, when I did, and... He saw himself as an explorer too, and he is an explorer. He's going out, trying to, by following his own path, given things to the world, a different way of seeing, a different way of interpreting. He's had people come to him, models, for over 20 years to sit in the same place, and he paints them every week. It's quite an incredible exploration. Another painter that I feel an affinity with, who was certainly kind of mad in a conventional sense, Ian Fairweather, the great... Uh, Scottish-born painter who uh, who was a prisoner of war in the First World War, who goes on a journey. He, he studied in, in London. He studied Japanese. He studied Chinese. He translated books like The Drunken Buddha from China. He went to China. He went to Shanghai. He studied calligraphy. He ends up in Australia. Uh, he's painting all along. He was at the Slades. He changes his style. He incorporates Oriental symbols into his work he lives out on an island in bribey island before that he lived up in darwin apparently at some stage he lived in a cement mixer one day <laughs> that's yeah. that's a mixing it up <laughs> yeah. one day he decided apparently now i'm not recommending that everything when he was 60 that he wanted to see his friend in uh indonesia so he made a raft for himself and he got on the with a bit of water and he sailed across and ended up was washed up on on the uh, on the beach over there, we have, haven't had sharks 
around them uh, and they put them in prison and send them home. Uh, when, <laughs> when Robert, I hope they fed him first. <laughs> Robert Hughes went out to see him. Now, I've gone to see where his shack used to be. It was just a shack. He painted on anything. He'd paint on newspapers, on anything, with household paint. He just wanted to paint. Uh, and uh, Robert Hughes, the great art critic, one of the best, came to see him. And when he found him, he, the guy had gangrene, his toe. Uh, oh. He had to take him to the hospital. He couldn't do the interview because, well, he didn't do the interview then. Um, and uh, how did he get the gangrene? He was tried, he, he tried to feed a piece of cheese to an iguana and the iguana bit him. And, oh. <laughs> and these guys, you say, these guys are the, are, are the guys that provide a different model of reality. You know, that people can live their yes. life in different ways and they can come up with great art that when you look at it, it's very, you know, you know, you have to engage in it. You have to try and understand. You have to try and understand the background, the life, to learn something and you get something. You get something which is deep and that's what art is about. And I know uh, you're an artist and I am as well. And from that exploration, you can look into someone else's soul and they make an effort in their life as well to, to go beyond the basic realities, to go beyond all the things they've suffered for the reason that they give to somebody else a different perspective and uh, living close to nature, uh, not looking for the material comforts, not caring about celebrity, just believing that through painting, they can create a bit of magic. They can create a different, and they can do, and people can do that. So I admire when people go on their own journey. It doesn't matter what journey it is. And another thing is people think they have to go off to India. They won't be able to do it now probably, but they have to go off to India or go off to some strange place, talk in some strange language, read some old books. But they don't. You, 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 spiritual evolution can happen everywhere, anywhere. Uh, the householder is, is another classic uh, model. Absolutely. So it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be anything strange or psychedelic. Uh, it's a natural process if people begin, and from there they will get power. There's no psychological power without really spiritual power. It, 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 there's it's something else. There has to be some kind of base before that, wh which comes from. Now people may not recognise that, but there is a spiritual base, and once people access that base, that level of consciousness, then they begin to unleash the power. Then they begin to surprise themselves because they will find that their spirit, uh, as it evolves can access more knowledge than their minds can. People don't understand that. They can access, there's a noetic quality, uh, an ineffable quality that takes them out of the limitations of the mind. As we know from people like Donald Hoffman, that talking about conscious agents, but in many senses, and this is a double-edged sword, scientists understand that our view of the world is very, very limited, but they're using that to make us doubtful about what we see as a and the mystics have been saying this since time immemorial, that what we see is not the real world. Now science right. is accepting that, but it's, it's saying as a result of that, what you see is real and you're not trustworthy, so you can't make your own judgment. So this is another a sinister, I'm not saying about Donald Hoffman, not about him, but no, yeah, I know. that things can, the doctrines can be utilized for nefarious purposes. So we, are, we have to be on our guard and we can only be on our guard if we have some very clear, simple and functional uh, way of interacting mentally with the spiritual universe and the range of people that have showed us the way and have gone a different path for that purpose and also 
the dead and the alive that they can help us that, 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 that that's what they were doing they were trying to give to us they can they give to us in their lessons over time and space and they talk directly to us so we we, we shouldn't see them as located in a particular place a long way away must have talking directly to us and the things that they're saying because they're true will have a a big impact and if you look in particular say the gospel of thomas the the, the, the gnostic gospel in relation to jesus there's an awful lot in there about the things we're talking about jesus said if they ask you where you came from tell them you came from the place where the light came into being of its own accord it's an incredible yeah that's very beautiful good. statement uh, and also he anticipates in that the when, when he says that if if spirit emerged from the flesh it is a wonder of wonder contrasting it with the wonder uh, that it would be otherwise meaning that it couldn't have emerged from the flesh so he anticipates this idea that consciousness emerges from the brain in my view and says it doesn't it comes from somewhere else. No. It came from where the light was. And it's the clearest statement that is consistent, that is all, also suggestive to me from the hermetic tradition, from Buddhism, from all the explorations in shamanism, that what they're talking about is, uh, and in, in the various strands of the Kabbalah, that what they're talking about is a pre-existing light that we are part of and that we aspire to return to but our mission in this context is to evolve in this form in this heavy density uh, but they all say the, the the same thing that we are light and we're going back to, to light that's criticized by certain people there are certain feminist theologians that say that's a big lie because they believe that it's about the material world now now of course we have to attend to the material world it's not only that so don't let people take away your spiritual being and increasingly people are people are taking these doctrines and translating them into an inappropriate context by saying it's all about realizing material success in this domain and that's clearly inconsistent with what any of the spiritual leaders are saying well you know my response to that is the only thing you can take with you when you die is what you've become no, you know, as Jesus said, a rich man can no sooner get to heaven than a camel can fit through the eye of a needle, which I interpret as nothing material has any agency once you leave your body. No pockets and trails, yeah? Yeah, all you can take with you is what you've become. And ultimately, in my experience, the best thing to become is love because no matter what dimension you're in, and I've been in a lot of dimensions. I have been in dimensions. I've been on the sun, for example, remote viewing and had beings seven plus feet tall that looked exactly like praying mantises come talk to me. And when I talked to them, first, they scared the hell out of me, but they but they let me know that they're safe and, and, and they talked to me and they were super wise. But the point I'm making is I can tell you true story after true story of my travels around this universe and i find love to be the universal not just language but love is the universal energy of harmony and bonding and i think the more love you can fill yourself with by 
living and loving fully and honestly, the more your consciousness expands and the more the veil drops away and the safer you are, no matter where you're at in the universe. And ultimately, every religion in its own way realizes God is love if they have the concept of God at all. So for me, I just found that as I've grown and matured and learned how to love and first of all, how to love myself as the basis of how to love others and support others in their own pursuit of their creativity, because I think creativity is the ultimate expression of love. And one of the reasons that I find art such an important spiritual practice is because I believe it was Henry Miller that said, when you're painting and the art spirit comes, you're adding life to life. And I really feel that I'm most alive when I'm adding life to life. And I think that true spiritual practices, that's what they do. They bring more life into your life and you have more life in you. And the more alive you are, the more vital you are, and the more you have to share with other people. And if you look at spirituality conceptual as a progressively greater sphere of connection, ultimately love brings you to the point where your connection reaches to the edges of the known and embraces the unknown. And then you have no fear, even if it means completely just nirvana to extinguish, then if you've lived fully enough, then then whatever is the truth is an, an invitation. To me, whatever God is, whether I, my conceptions or experiences are right or wrong, I know that that's the source of love. That's the source of life. That's the source of creativity. That's the source of mind itself. So my my quest is to penetrate to the very core of it. And whatever it is that's there is powerful enough to create universes, minds, stars, galaxies, and everything that we know. And and if there's a teacher that I want to embrace, it's it's that one because the evidence as you know, by their fruits you shall know them. No matter what's going on in this planet, if you just lay on your back and look up at the stars at night, unless you're just completely deranged, you cannot be in utter awe of the power and the beauty of the artist that paints those skies like that. Un until they fill it up with junk as they're trying to do, even take away the beauty of that, which is, is, is right. Yes. <laughs> but the, I agree with you, of course. Uh, but the, the thing that uh, no, no number of things come to mind when you say that, of course, we, when I mentioned the museum, the museum idea was based on muses. And, and and this is the thing that has disappeared from the thing. And, and when you engage in art, uh, as you have, when I do, that sometimes they come and you, you get the sense of being uh, transported. And the, the sense yes. of uh, sometimes the best painting that I did, it kind of appeared before me and I didn't. I knew it was finished. I knew I didn't have to do anything, although I was expressionist. And I couldn't have done it consciously. I, I just, I just couldn't have. No, done it. I have that yeah. experience regularly. That's when you really know you're having a spiritual experience. Yeah. The other thing that I that impresses me about there's a lot of there's a lot of soft, fluffy, inoffensive 
spirituality, which is non-confrontational. And I, I don't see that there's a there's a place for that, you know, which are, uh, but I, I kind of respect as well that warrior archetype where you have a tough love where and, and I can see that in in your background and in, in boxing and in also the, the discipline that you have and the detail and I'm sure you're a hard task master I say that with respect <laughs> uh, uh, that, yeah. that but um, and that's and therefore sometimes it's difficult for people to believe that behind that uh, figure but I, I respect it more it's more credible for me my father was a, a good boxer and he he had this this kind of love which was it was just like a physical force his belief in god was not any int intellectual it was just a real force his love of nature listen to a bird song stop stop and listen you know to, uh, to a bird song it was just impressive it was more powerful than than, than anything you, you you could teach someone so example is the best teacher uh, and another point that came to mind in that context before i forget it was um goes back to, to Jeffrey Mishlove and the PK man and another another simple point uh, and it's about your mind as well that the PK man when you're talking about you reminded me when you're talking about the, the praying mantis because that was a, they, they were figures that uh, Owens Ted Owens saw they were the figures the space intelligences that were, that he was using to, um, and uh, as as we know they they recur in, in, in loads of mystical experiences. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and particularly in, in, for, uh, for the native people. But Ted Owens had studied, and he used to do stage shows with memory and memorizing things. And this is an important point in the history of magic. If we go back to the tradition and Renaissance magic, the memory palace was critical. You had to develop your memory. Yeah. Uh, and it's, mm -hmm. it's there in Ficino, and it's there in Bruno. It's a critical element. And if we look back in the Celtic traditions, the Druids and the Druid class, the, there was special classes which were respected, the warrior class, the kind of magic healer class, and the, the law, and the poet, you know, in various movements. But law was an oral tradition. Uh, there was a, a well-developed system of law in Ireland before the common law came. Ireland was one of the, the there was a code which came from an early Christian uh, which was one of the first codes of protection of uh, widows and children and warfare, for example. But there were systems of compensation at thousands of years old for what happened if you got injured at a blacksmith, for example, and, and the systems. This is a very old legal system that was taken away. But most of the legal system was a system that had to be memorized. Uh, so they had to have good memory. The poets had to have good memory. Obviously, a herbalist had to have a good memory. And when you cut this tradition goes true. And when you come up to the PK man, he said that you had to have a good memory or you wouldn't be able to deal with the space intelligences. In some way, it would destroy your brain. So there was, a, there was another reason as well, because I don't know, a physical reason, whatever you want to call it, there had to be protections in your brain. Your brain, in some way, your personality, your spirit is in some kind of labyrinth that you have to protect. Um, so if you think about these mobile phones and all these things, they're sucking out gradually. They're suck they're turning yep. you inside out. They're, they're, they're yep. making you relinquish the very things which will also offer you protection in the context of expanding or exposing in the mystical concept and also in a deeper sense. So uh, we have to think 
going back to looking at those traditions, there was good reasons why, uh, apart from purely functional reasons, why they utilized their memories. There was good reasons why the magicians always developed their memories, developed their powers, looked at things, remembered things, discussed things, were able to talk, uh, were able to talk, communicate, tell a story, whatever, because there's, there was particular reasons, uses for those skills in the construction of their, their functioning brain before they engaged in these things. I wouldn't dismiss that. So as we're relying and externalizing our, our brain, we're exposing ourselves more and more. And also, as they're trying to map the correlates, they believe that it will be clearer to them about how we're behaving. And they'll certainly be able to predict certain behaviors, but they believe that that's, um, that's more important than it is. But the point is that we really have to internalize. We have to, we have to utilize our body, as you have always explained to people, our mind as well. We, we, we can't get lazy in relation to using the disciplined element of our mind in, in, in testing it, in working it in old-fashioned ways. And they will facilitate as well as a base our spiritual evolution. So there has to be a holistic way. And we know that the word uh, healing and holy and whole, and they all go together. Uh, and uh, yeah. and also another concept, uh, the holy fool is another person we need these days. We need people that appear to be appear to be silly uh, and, and do things because there's no comedians that are funny anymore. All the comedians have turned into serious guys that are working for the propaganda m- model, working for the man. Have you noticed that in every country they get the comedians and they bring them in uh, and and except one, uh, I can think of a few. Have, have you seen J.P. Sears? I can't recall at the moment. Uh, can't, uh, Just search, search J.P. Yeah, Sears. Yeah, yeah. He, he was a student of mine for many years. He was okay, an instructor yeah. for my institute for, I think, five or seven years before he yeah. followed his dream to become a comedian. And he is putting himself at great risk because okay. he is deadly honest about what's going Good on. Respect. And he wraps it up in humor. But he is shooting some bullseyes on a regular basis. And he recently got his third notification from Facebook that they were going to kick him off if he kept saying the things he was saying. And his response is, screw you. I don't need you. (laughs) But, uh, you know, he's I'm very proud of him. You know, this guy came to me when he was 19 years old. He dropped out of college because he said the only thing that interested him was my teaching. So he would carry all his study material into his university classes and sit there and study my course manuals while he was in university. And finally he just came to the realization, I just got to get the hell out of here and go study with Paul check. But anyhow, he, he was not only one of my instructors and a very, very skilled therapist and practitioner and excellent instructor, but I encouraged him to follow his heart when he told me he wanted to go off and do his own thing. And, became a now he's a world famous comedian and he really is doing a phenomenal job of waking people up with all the issues that are going on i'm proud as hell of him so i will keep an eye out for him and and, uh when you think of george carlin and and the things that make those jokes yeah there there were prophecies you know and about and about how they'd come to get everything for the social security the whole lot they'd be for that and he was he was he was right on, on on those things about how the education system was dumbed down. It's, it's, uh, but um, I, I will uh, keep an eye out out for him because another tradition in 
ancient Ireland was the power of making fun of power. Now this is this is being co-opted to have like stooges that kind of represent the propaganda model to be utilized against the people. But that's not what it was about. It was always about, according to the the records, about using uh, to speak in power to truth. Uh, and and uh, that that's what you're talking about, and that's that's where it requires courage, because it's easy if you're a lord, lord, ha ha, you know, like the, like the uh, William Joyce that the, the Germans used, you know, uh, to, to, as a spokesman for the Nazis uh, to, to to make jokes at other people's expense. But uh, the the power of of deconstruction of something which is bad, as opposed to as deconstruction of something which is good. Is a powerful force too, and it's genuine. So, uh, but they will yeah. certainly be alienated. Yeah. Well, James, we've had a hell of a good run. We're almost <laughs> at three and a half hours here, and it feels like I've been hanging out with you for about twenty minutes. Yeah. And uh, I'm really excited to share this conversation, and I'm very grateful for the depth of your wisdom, your knowledge, your life experience, and I feel grateful that i can expose people to your work um where can people find out more about you and your work uh, the only place is the website james tunney.com i don't do social uh, media uh com. i have art and some references and links some interviews there and that's t-u-n-n-e-y everybody yeah. t-u-n-n-e-y funny money honey yeah, James Tunney, not Tooney. He's yeah, not like, a loony Tooney. Like, He's like, funny money. <laughs> well, like <laughs> the, the great world heavyweight champion Gene Tunney was, of course, his father was from Mayo, and he was christened James Tunney. So he's another one of one of a uh, distant relation. So um, beat Jack Dempsey twice, only defeated once in his uh, career, eighty odd wins. Um, so uh, another impressive figure. But uh, I want to thank yeah. you um, for the conversation. I, I, I didn't have any regard to anybody else in this. Uh, when, when I'm talking with you and when I'm communicating with you, I'm very appreciative of the depth of your study. And I, I know that I'm learning. It's a mutually reinforcing uh, mutual exchange. Uh, and I've been very impressed with the discipline and the diligence of your search. And it, it's a clearly... A genuine one and uh, when you bring to that what well, I've also been surprised when I've seen that discipline when you bring to that a lightness and the 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 psyche aspect going back to the Greek goddess who represents the spirit for me who who is subsequently utilized or turned into Cinderella because Cinderella is the forgotten element the the, the ugly sisters are the other elements of your per- of one's personality. The prince mm. is not a man. He's, he's representing the correspondence that the, the, the soul, the spirit attains when it's developed and its, its true beauty is realized by uh, balancing itself with the operative forces in the material world. So, uh, and uh, I, I can see that you have that, uh, that uh, element in you that, that, that you share and that will will be very very useful as we're we're establishing some kind of positive uh, informal networks of, of, of hope so thank you again yes thank you let's let's uh 
you know, let's not make this the end. I, I want to uh, keep having these discourses with you. I think they're healthy, and I think a lot of people can benefit from our dialogue. So, you know, I'm taking a little time off to write. Uh, I've got enough podcasts as of this week to last me till August so I can get some writing done. But uh, if you're up for it, I'd I'd love to, y- you and I get together every now and then, every few months or something, and let's keep digging into all this stuff because I really feel we have a lot to share with people that can really help them. Yeah, and uh, uh, by August, the world will be quite different from, from it is now. But Prob- probably, the is- but... The but- issues- the issues will be the same, so they're not going to be any different. So we'll have to we have to finesse, and I'd look forward to, and I appreciate the opportunity, and I appreciate the the Maryland uh, reaching out to other people to encourage uh, people's growth and to to, to, to use that um, facility that you have to spread and to encourage a uh, network. So thank you very much for, thank for your you. hard work. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to all of you listeners. I hope you've enjoyed uh, James Tunney. I mean, I love this guy. His art is amazing. His writings are amazing. If you really want to get a good taste of James's writing, just get the book, The Mystery of the Trap Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. I don't care who you are. I don't care how developed you are. There's a lot in there. I mean, one passage in there can throw you into a meditation that might take you days to finish harvesting. I I sit this book by my chair and sometimes I'll just pick it up and ask my soul to take me to something for, for the day, you know, and I'll, I'll pull a gem out of there and, and I'll just be just like, wow, okay, I can, I can really work on this and harvest this. And as you can see from my list, there was a lot of stuff I wanted to talk to you about, but our dialogue didn't take us to that. So I'm just going to save those questions for our next visit because they're so important, so beautiful. And uh, I'm excited to, to, to share you with everybody, James, and I encourage all of you to look at his website, check out his art, check out his books. And uh, thank you all for anything you buy from the sponsors. Thank you very much to the sponsors of the podcast. You're amazing people. I love you. I'm grateful for what you do in the world. And I'm very proud to be able to share your products with the world. And thank you to all of you who buy anything from the sponsors, because it does give me a little trickle of income to help support the podcast. And I put a lot of time, energy, and effort into making a good podcast for all of you, as I'm sure you know, or you wouldn't keep listening. So let's share the love. James, thanks again. And I, I've got one complaint and... before I go. My okay, daughter, please do. My daughters who got your book are going around and telling me, oh, Paul Check says this, Paul Check says that, Paul Check <laughs> so, uh, The worst thing that are going to happen is they're going to make you more <laughs> vital and younger because they're going to tune your diet up and say, Dad, oh, wow. you got to try this exercise. And, yeah. you know, we got to get that dairy out of there and get that gluten out of there. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. And we'll talk again. Appreciate that. Absolutely, thank Jim. You. Aho. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, James Tunney. You can find James's website at jamestunney.com where you can find his books, artwork and links to other interviews he has done. Follow Paul on Instagram at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with Paul Check. 
Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to Czech videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chekiva.com. Remember, you can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast.